Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, the dear Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Hello, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. I, I tell you. Ah, as the person who introduces extra, extra, it's all about whiskey. Mm-hmm. I just love it when we come back to One Nation Under Whiskey. And I just get to sit and listen and be introduced. For years, you've just made it seem so effortless <laughs> I try. that I, I, really, I really thought it would be much easier. And, and it's not. There's, there's thinking going on. The old gray matter mm. is operational. It's not too and much so, thinking. It's just thinking for like 45 seconds. I mean, I understand that could be... 44 seconds more than you normally think for. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest here. Wow. Uh, I'll tell you what's interesting. Okay. I just took a break there to go downstairs and top up my water glass. Mm-hmm. And in this time of shutdown, I've realized that my two young children and my wife are able to hear every word I say to you when we're recording our podcast. Oh, no. Oh, that, that's so not necessarily I, good. <laughs> so even though I've got you in my ear, uh-huh. in my earbud, yep. I, I've got them quietly working on their schoolwork or... Have you been called out on things? Like, has Tamara or your or your boys said like, geez, <laughs> dad, what a potty mouth or... You've, you've... No, they were... No, they just were like, oh, where are you going? I was all oh, back up to record with Joshua. Oh, I thought you just finished. No, I'm taking a break. Okay. Like, why are you asking so many questions? How much do you know? Why are you on the inside? Here, talking about the kids. In our, our last Extra Extra, it's all about whiskey episode, mm-hmm. I made reference to Tim Mushaw, a good guy, good listener, mm-hmm. good supporter. And, um, and he had made a joke online that when we announced a new podcast, it was going to be Extra Extra, it's all about movies. <laughs> Which, which you and I do spend some time talking about movies, which is funny because I, I'm much more a reader than a movie watcher. Interesting. But the the ones that I do watch, I I tend to talk to you about because I always assume you've seen them, mm. and and so a couple of months ago, you and I have discussed the Indiana Jones mm-hmm. franchise. Alistair Walker has chimed in on his position on the Indiana Jones franchise. Uh, our our listeners have chimed in on Facebook about yes, they how they yes, feel they about have, yeah. So it really takes on a little life. Movies really connect people. And in this time of social distancing, we're all looking for good connections. Yes, we are. So a couple of months ago, uh, my boys saw the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And Was that, hold on, I'm just going to put a pin in that. Was that by, was that because you or Tamara said, okay, boys, this is what we're going to do? Or was it family movie night? Hey, what do you want to watch? And the boys said, you know, all my friends have watched this. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not that. (laughs) Definitely not that. So a few years ago, we thought the boys were getting to a place. A few years ago, they would have been 10 and 7. And we thought they were getting to a place where they might want something exciting and funny and really captivating mm-hmm. and and my wife and I thought well they're kids and Pirates of the Caribbean was a kids movie mm-hmm. let's let's see if they're ready for it and so <laughs> on Pirates of the Caribbean and literally within 30 seconds they were both crying <laughs> and asking us to turn it off 
<laughs> so, which we did, we did, we didn't, we didn't make them suffer through it. Okay. And uh, and we thought, okay, we'll put that on the back burner for another day. <laughs> and so, for the last three years, my wife and I, on Saturday movie night, when uh-huh. we we make pizza and we sit down to watch a movie together, we um, we've kind of side eyed each other like is this pirates time is oh, okay. this pirates time okay. yeah. and so my my mom and her partner uh, were over staying with us mm-hmm. for my eldest bar mitzvah and the boys had started talking to their nana as they call her okay. about pirates of the caribbean and my mom loves the movie has the series oh, okay. loves johnny okay. depp <laughs> and so the boys were kind of like well maybe we should all watch it together Wow. And we were like, okay. And so and so we did. Okay. And it's to to me, this is a bit of a spoiler alert. To me, it's the only one worth watching. Mm, highly disagree. Oh, this is gonna get fun. So <laughs> so so we watched it, loved it, enjoyed it, laughed in all the right places. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think it was released maybe 2002 maybe 2003 at the latest, but I really feel 2002. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> Here we go, Josh. No, you know what? This, not... That sounds about right. Okay. Okay, because okay. we did have our fourth Indiana Jones release year be just crazy numbers. But 2002, right? So so this past uh, Saturday, mm-hmm. which doesn't align with when we're releasing this podcast, but time doesn't mean anything right now anyway. So exactly, here we are. right? And so the boys came to us. And I've said this before on the podcast. My boys hate sequels. My boys have no interest in watching sequels. And so they came to us uh-huh. and said, can we watch the second Pirates movie? Whoa. We were like, geez, we don't even own the second Pirates movie. Um, because, as I mentioned earlier, uh-huh. the first one's the only one worth watching. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so we we put on the second movie, watched it all the way through. Okay. By the end of it, I said to the boys, "So, so what do you think of that? Oh, that was really good." Mm. And any test of the quality <laughs> of a movie for them is if they'll then watch it again the next day. Oh, interesting. Sun, okay. Sunday mornings because they've got no Hebrew school yeah. on Sunday morning, yeah. mornings. They are they're filling that time with movie watching, uh-huh. and so for the last few weeks when we've rented a movie, boom, they've watched it the next morning. Um, the exception to that <laughs> was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. They wow. they watched it the Saturday night. The thirteen year old really quite enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. The ten year old kind of suffered through it. And then the next morning, there was no rewatching of the Holy Grail, which was really sad to me. I was really disappointed by that. Yeah, you know, I, I've watched Holy Grail with with my kids y- years ago, b- before I, you know, back when I forgot about the, uh, you know, Castle Anthrax scenes and everything, <laughs> and and my kids liked it, but the more I try to put Monty Python in front of them. The more they push back, now my kids, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they love mm-hmm. some of the skits, right? They love the cheese shop skit. They love, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the the funny Olympics or whatever, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the swimming for people who can't 
you know, <laughs> swim or, or what, what have you. But if I try to do Life of Brian or if I try to do, you know, any of the movies, it's like, nope, nope, not interested. And is it just because that's 70s humor and that doesn't work? Or what do you think it is? No, I definitely think it's the is your parent pushing it upon you. Uh, I definitely think it's just an Im- an immediate and instant reaction that this really uncool person who lives in my house likes this. Uh-huh. I am not going to like this. But like, yeah. so, so here's yeah. here's an example. Okay. We held off on showing the boys Goonies, and I know again, I know you showed it to your kids earlier than we did. We held off showing it to them because we didn't want to force that love of Goonies upon them. Mm. And we waited and we waited. And it was probably now a couple of years ago we showed them Goonies and they seemed to enjoy it plenty in the moment. They weren't overly exuberant about it. They certainly never talk about it. And then the other day as we were scrolling through Amazon looking for Pirates of the Caribbean, it offered up Goonies. Yeah. And my eldest son was like, oh, Goonie, oh, that's so good. That was such a good movie. Um, and I'm just like playing it calm, yeah. focused on the screen, working through the options. Like, like where did that come from? Like, he never <laughs> once talked about it like that. And now it's yeah. a great, great movie that he loved. Okay, so it's, and that was, we let Goonies come to them. And so wow. I am definitely of the mind that pushing it upon them. And I was, I was a little careful in showing them Holy Grail, Yeah, uh, you know. Trying to be like, oh, because I just like you were describing with your girls, I'd showed them the clip online years ago of of the Black Knight having his arms chopped off and (laughs) his leg chopped off and his other leg chopped off years ago, and they loved it. And it includes the word bastard. And so they were like, yay. And, um, And so when I said, oh, here's the Holy Grail. It was of the, do you remember when I showed you the Dark Knight clip? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so now it was the Dark Knight movie, uh, which is very different from the Christopher Nolan that okay. we'll show them very soon as well. Okay. Um, and that'll be wildly inappropriate. But, anywho, <laughs> number two ends on, I say a cliffhanger. I don't think it's a cliffhanger in the slightest, but it's, it's a clear continuation of the franchise. Mm-hmm. And I thought two was... Okay, Tamara and I, my wife and I, watched it at the cinema mm-hmm. back in 2006 okay. when it was released. It was a rainy July day. We were at Lake George. The cinema was packed because everybody was at Lake George for the outdoor <laughs> stuff. And we all went to the cinema on a pissing down rainy day. Yep. And I remember being underwhelmed at the time. The second one lacks the fun the enthusiasm of the first one just for me the first one's got a certain silliness to it mm-hmm. that you either buy into or you don't and and i i, I loved the silliness of the first one mm-hmm. second one starts to take itself seriously i remember that oh now you gotta watch the next one in the franchise and i did and i absolutely hated the third one wow i i fell asleep in the cinema well, during the third yeah, so, one so the third i one... took a nap was the third one where they kind of went underwater, like all of a sudden things kind of flipped? There's a big cavern, Maybe. or yeah. So, so Maybe. I think that that was the one, and I also fell asleep. However, 
However, I didn't fault the movie because I was quite... We're both new parents. <laughs> yes. I did. 2000 and, uh, I think it's 2007, 2008. For the third for the one. third one. Yeah, I Actually, say I want to say it's 2007. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. I think they released them back-to-back summers. Maybe they did. But anyway, to me, I didn't fault the movie. For me, it was... Oh, now I can catch some sleep. Yes, please, and thank you. And um, and you know we we own we own the movies, and I and I've watched it since. Was three as good as one? No. Was it as good as two? No. Was two as good as one? I liked it just as much as as one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I thought it was a good, fun continuation, and that was the one with. Um, Davy Jones. Davy Jones, that's it. <laughs> so I haven't seen any of the pirates after the third. I might have seen some clips in passing of the fifth, but I'm not willing to commit to that statement. <laughs> you you clearly liked first, second, and third enough. So as somebody who did enjoy the series, mm-hmm. have you seen all of them? I think that I've seen all of them. I I may I may have missed <laughs> tells you everything you need to know about the series. <laughs> I might have seen them all. Like, who can tell? Yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest, one and two, in my opinion, were just really good fun. And then I saw, you know, the final three, just by way, of, you know, just just to be a completionist, mm-hmm. you know, just 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 to get it all in. And I'm thinking that I may have fallen asleep through a few of them. Uh, not, you know, not just not just one. I think it was. Uh, let me. I'm trying to think of the names of them. So I, I'll almost guarantee that the On Stranger Tides one that I got some good shut eye in. Um, <laughs> what so year was that? That was what 2011, was- right? So that's that's Mimi at three years old. Right. And to be honest, I don't know if we would have taken... No, we would have taken her. (laughs) I may have just seen that one with Delma, though, because at three years old, Mimi was basically scared of everything. It's Um, hard to sit through a really boring Johnny Depp movie when you're three years old. Yeah, yeah. But so, and Delma would have been uh, five at the time. And at five, she would she would definitely have been into that because she always had this kind of spooky edge to her. Like she liked skeletons and she liked creepy things. And, you know, there's enough kid humor in there to, to keep her going. So, but yeah, you know, if, if I were to give grades, just going by memory here, I think one and two. I, I love the fact that you hate doing this for whiskey, but you do this for movies. So I'd give one. Well, there. Uh, yeah, good point. Uh, I'd I'd give one one and two a solid B plus. Like both of those were just good solid movies, and the, and then I would I would go maybe C to C minus for the maybe C plus down to C minus from from episodes three, four, and five. So there you go. Okay, if there was only, I'm going to give you a choice of two movies here. Mm-hmm. And you're only allowed to take one of them to a desert island with you. Mm-hmm. And you must watch it every day when you're on that desert island. Mm-hmm. Fifth, Pirates of the Caribbean or second, Indiana Jones? Can I just bring along Edward Penis Hands? 
instead? No, absolutely not. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, penis hands. No. Yeah, penis no, hands. No, penis no. hands. Different movie. No, sorry, different I filled in scissor hands. <laughs> I went good there. Um, uh, no, which which of those two are you watching every day on the desert island? Oh, it's got to be the first. Yeah, it's got to be the first. The fifth pirates. No, the first pirates. No. <laughs> Wait, what? Where did you go during the question? Where did you, what question did you ask me? The question was yeah. the fifth Pirates movie mm-hmm. or the second Indiana Jones movie. Those were your two options. <laughs> so I wasn't listening this whole time? No, you were not. The fifth Pirates movie or Indiana Jones. The uh, second The Indiana second Indiana Jones. Jones. So, so this is what I'll say. No. I, have to choose one of them. I, I know. I'm choosing. And you have one. to watch yeah. it every day. Every day on I, your desert island. I will choose Temple of Doom, and I will choose Why? Temple of Doom because, as bad as it is, there is still some nostalgia <laughs> tied up in it from being a younger person when that came out, mm-hmm. and you know, I'd, I'd almost put it. I'd almost you know pigeonhole it with Lost Boys uh, where when that movie came out I I enjoyed it when it came out I tried watching it again and holy crap is it unwatchable Um, but there's I could still connect to that kid who enjoyed it in the theaters and even though I didn't I I hope this has got all of our listeners rushing off to find a (laughs) copy of Lost Boys to see if it's as unwatchable as you are suggesting, oh, somebody uh, who enjoyed the second and third Pirates movies. Well, you know, when, when, uh, when Corey Feldman, you know, he's one of the Frog Brothers, and he always talked like this, like, oh, we got to get rid of those vampires. Read this comic book. It'll help you save your life. Uh, you know, it's just so terrible, <laughs> but, but you kind of revel in that. Like, you kind of like, ooh, that's so bad. You know, you kind of feel comforted by that in, in, in a weird way. So, so Temple of Doom is so bad that, that I'll kind of like enjoy how bad it is. More so than I enjoy how much of a yawn the fifth Pirates movie was. Yeah, yeah. As someone who has never seen the fifth Pirates movie... I'm only surmising how terrible it is. A lot of the things you read about it, Johnny Depp didn't actually learn his lines. He had an earpiece where they just fed him his lines. Uh There's some some good Hollywood gossip around that one. Um, Okay, let's... (laughs) This has been Extra Extra. It's all about movies. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Hang around for the Easter egg where we interview Amanda Schuster... Cover a listener email and talk about the sixth release of Single Cast Nation's retail line. Cheers. (laughs) Let me tell you how excited I am for this episode. You know, (laughs) two or a week ago or so, maybe a week and a half ago, you and I were, were recording the intro and the outro for our episode with Mark and Kate Watt. And Jess mm-hmm. Lomas. Yep, which was a ton of fun. I listened right? to that, the full thing on Saturday. That was a ton of fun. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and we've gotten some really good feedback from people. Yeah, people good chat. Just a good it. chat. But during that, we're discussing cocktails, and you'd said, oh, we've got to get Amanda on this podcast. And I said, why are we being so stupid right now? Like, we should have stopped what we were doing then yep. and, and reached out to Amanda. Instead, we reached out to her the very next day, and, and she said, yeah. 
I'd, I'd love to have it sit down with you guys. Um, yeah, and to, to, to back this up just for two seconds, right, yeah, go ahead. I had I had purchased her cocktail book at that point. Yes, that's right. And just for the record, the book still has not arrived. This is the speed at which Amazon and UPS are moving oh. on non-essential items. And I am sitting here chill as the underside of the pillow. I have no concerns, no qualms that the book has not yet appeared. I understand we're living in a global mm-hmm. pandemic. I am patient. I am simply giving the update to the listener as to why I'm not commenting on the book that I had ordered, <laughs> which um, led to us reaching out to Amanda and having a fantastic conversation with her. Absolutely I love chatting with her. She knows that New York scene inside out and back to front. Yeah. So we've we've known Amanda for a few years now. Um, she has oh, been... That's, a, right? that's selling it short. We've probably known Amanda for maybe a decade. Let's call it a decade. Yeah, you could very well be right. Actually... We, I, I have definitely known her for a bit over a decade, and you will have known her, yeah, probably a decade. So there you go. Yep, almost, yeah. Yeah. There is a fun bit in the interview where you do recall the first time you and Amanda met. It's a, it's a nice little touch. And well, I was not there, so you, you were I was, not there. I was living it and, and through I had, your words. And I had to go by memory. Uh, but I'm near positive that that was it. And, and you know, listeners will hear her, you know, kind of echo the same thing. Like, yeah, I think that that was it. Maybe that was it. Yeah. But- Ask me what happened three decades ago, I'll tell you. Ask me what happened in the last decade. I really, I'll do my best. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I want to hand this over to Amanda, but but just really quickly before we do, so we we've definitely done podcasts in the past where we've we've gotten off topic, right? These little these little detours. We've interviewed actors, comedians, writers, and even though Amanda is a spirits writer and she focuses on whiskey, she is after all the um, editor in chief at Alcohol Professor. The subject of today's conversation is her book, which came out a few years back. It's now 2017 it came out, uh, but it's called New York Cocktails, an elegant collection of over 100 recipes inspired by the Big Apple. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it to land. I'm excited to give a read of it. It was also funny in talking to Amanda where you and I had had the back and forth. Did it come out in 18... 18- Maybe it was 19 and I was saying, no, it was before that. And uh, we did double check. It is September of 2017 release date on it. And it was just such a long time ago. It doesn't feel like it. It's just remarkable. The reason I bring this up is because it absolutely made me think of our fourth Indiana Jones release conversation where was it the late 90s was it the Uh, early 2000s yes yes yes, yes. oh it was 2012 okay just throw a number at me nothing matters um and so september 2017 for this release but i was happy that we could still discuss this book and we could revisit what was kind of going on with amanda and Mm. how she put it together and what she did with it um, I, I love the conversation. I, I, I love talking to anybody who's put together a book project and the work mm. that that's entailed. 
And as she goes on to talk about, the length of time she had to work on it, which was somewhat surprising as well. Yeah, it it, it was. Um, let's let's stop waxing lyrical about about her. Uh, let's go on to our conversation. And uh, anyway, yeah, listen in. I, I I think listeners will enjoy this detour, especially as more and more people are looking to have fun and, and play with their drinks at home. Hopefully, this will be just as fun for you to listen to as it was for us to talk with Amanda. So, Amanda, I was telling my kids that that we were interviewing you this morning, and this isn't our first interview together, but it is the first time we've interviewed you. Yeah, I guess so. That's right, because I interviewed you. That's right. Yeah, I was yeah. I was kind of thrilled by that. So so welcome. Cool. Tables are turned. I'm on I'm on the couch. I'm literally on the couch. This is perfect. <laughs> well, it was so perfect the other day. We were Joshua and I were recording the episode of One Nation Under Whiskey. They'll go live on Wednesday. And I was telling them, oh, I bought some books on Amazon and a cookbook and um, the Malt Whiskey Yearbook 2020 that I'm behind on. And mm. I said, yeah, and I, and I bought Amanda's book, New York Cocktails. And uh, he said, oh, I said, yeah, I finally got around to it. I'm kind of embarrassed that it took me this long to buy it. And he said, yeah, I bought it when it came out, you know, just, you know, 2018. I was like, "Um, it didn't come out 2018. No, 2017. (laughs) 2017, it's amazing. And and so, yeah, we, we looked up September 2017. It is mind boggling that your book came out September of 2017. Does it feel as long ago to you as it sounds to us? It feels like 80 years ago. Does it? (laughs) It really does. And, you know, what's really interesting to me is when I was writing it, we were in the midst of what was becoming this insanely fast news cycle. I got the assignment to write it at the end of December 2016 and began writing it. And I only had six weeks to write it. Oh, wow. Um, wow. in January of 2017 when all hell broke loose. Like there was the inauguration and then the news cycle from, you know, that all of a sudden sped up. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And I, and here I was trying to write a book about drinking and, <laughs> and all of this stuff going on in the world and trying to concentrate on it. Um, and so, and it just seems like, Wow, that was the worst thing to have to concentrate on. That's yeah. amazing. But also just thinking about all of the places that I felt were important to highlight and um, the drinks that I thought were important to highlight and all those things just seem like a million years ago. They really do. Yeah, that that makes good sense. When, when you first got the assignment, mm-hmm. and it, it was clearly December of 2016, so clearly the election had happened the world yeah. knew what was coming and then yeah. you had the inauguration and the, the speeding up of the, the news cycle. What was your goal with the book? Had, had you wanted to write a cocktail book for a while and had it percolating? Or was this your chance to say, okay, now I'm in charge. How, what do I want this book to do or say or what have you? Well, it, uh, that answer is kind of twofold. I've been wanting to write a book, not necessarily a cocktail book. Mm-hmm. But when I, I was commissioned to write this book by this publisher, and it's part of a series, there's Miami cocktails and Paris cocktails. Uh, I think at the time, okay. New Orleans and Paris already existed. New York was to be the next one. And then following that came Texas and a few other things. Um, 
And I knew it was going to be part of a series and it was up to me to represent my city. And so I felt I, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I mean, they, they wanted something written in six weeks. They didn't really obviously didn't care about, you know, about the sort of attention to detail that I cared about. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, and also being a part of this community, I wanted to make sure the people that I cared about were represented yeah. and the drinks that I love were represented. And I wanted this to be I really wanted this to be a great snapshot of of New York, a little bit of the past a lot of the present and the end to, you know, pay homage to the things that got us here. Hmm. Fantastic. Wow. So, and so how, how did you then go about unpacking yeah. that? There was no time to unpack. Yeah. Right. It was, it was kind weeks, of, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of, it was kind of like being moved into witness protection. You know, you just kind of have to like, okay, don't even think about it. Just, just get all your stuff together and, and figure out, you know, I had I had to basically just call a bunch of people and be like, look, I can't come to your bar right now. You, I've been to your bar before. You know I've been there. You see me before. Just give me your recipe. Oh, and and sign this permission slip for for a picture wow. that I can't take. <laughs> and, you know, and and so that's basically how I had to do it. But then this book was it was also complicated because I had to do interviews. They wanted a certain number of interviews sure. and they and certain people. And it was like, go find Dave Wondrick. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> that's going to happen. And, but I did it. I, I managed to, I managed to make the right call and, and we met together at the Brooklyn Inn um, over a couple Boilermakers. Oh, okay. and he gave me incredible advice. He was actually one of the first people I interviewed and that was, it was a beautiful interview. It was, he was so incredibly kind to me and, and, and very nurturing and, and um, yeah, he had a lot of really great advice. So, so for listeners who are around the world listening to this, who have no idea who this is, can yes. you give us a snapshot? on who you're talking about here? So David Wondrick is, um, to me, he was actually the first, one of the first people that I learned about when I entered this crazy world sometime around 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. And it was just like one of those names where it's like, okay, here's this person who has done this incredible research and written these books about the history of drink and about the history of cocktails. And he also was somebody like, I'll never meet this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's... So he's a book author and he's a, he's a historian and he, and he gives these lectures. It's just like, it was just always like this kind of like, you know, fourth wall. Mm -hmm. And then as I, as I became, um, more, um, as I, as I started taking part in the, in the industry, you know, we, we sort of met each other a couple times. Hey, you know, we started to know who each other was and that sort of thing. And, and it was amazing to me that when I was writing this book, you know, he, he was like one of the people who were like, yes, he was, a, he was championing me. Wow. And I was, I was really, I was really touched by that. And was there were a couple other mind, people too. Was his mind blown that you had six weeks or is this kind of a no. normal cycle? <laughs> See, he's here's the thing. So he's, you know, he's become pretty hip to the fact that a lot of these cocktail books are commissioned and they're they're meant to be published quickly. They're meant to be published and forgotten. Mm, A lot of them, you know, and and so it's just kind of like they're out and then they're and they're gone and then on to the next thing. Hmm. It's almost like they're elongated articles. And that was just starting to happen when this book happened. Wow. So I think he was I think he was recognizing this, you know, despite the fact when he writes something, it takes him years. Yeah, right. And he's given years <laughs> to do it. He's allowed to have that much time. <laughs> but there are very few of us who do that. I'm <clears throat> I'm having a a really difficult time wrapping my head around something that is a book that is meant to be put together in six weeks and then forgotten. Like that doesn't, 
when it's put into a book, it seems to be now it's remembered forever. I, I don't understand that. Yeah. That uh, mindset. Well, you would like that, right? But I mean, but I think a lot of these, you know, are just going to be part of a series, and they'll be limited editions, and I don't know if there'll be another print of them. I mean, that's not always the case. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <clears throat> and I certainly. Excuse me. I really wanted to make sure my goal was this book is not going to be forgotten. Maybe. Oh no. <laughs> I want this to be. I yeah. want this to be a lasting memoir of the city. Well, damn it, Amanda. We're sitting here in April 2020 <laughs> talking to you about, talking it, about it. So we're refusing to let it be forgotten as well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so how did how did all that work out? I mean, there's in in New York there there are plenty of 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 people in your industry you've got other peers that are that are in the yeah. drinks writing business and then this weight was thrust upon your shoulders like how yeah. how how did that work out first of all i had to give myself myself permission to make mistakes mm-hmm. okay i knew because i had such a limited amount of time i was going to forget somebody or yeah, or not even or not even forget them it was just like oh god some things are going to fall by the wayside and i just have to let it go yeah Um, and so I had, I'm a very disciplined worker. I always have been, and I work from home anyway. And so I, you know, I just made this part of my process. The other thing is I had to work full time while I was writing this book. (laughs) So the only way to do it was to like, I really had to be disciplined about my schedule and, and I really couldn't allow for any sort of interruption in it, no matter what was going on. And, you know, thank goodness I didn't get sick or anything that would have been horrible. Mm -hmm. But so, um, so I just went, okay, I made myself a list. I made myself a timeline. I knew that some things were going to take longer and some things were going to be shorter. Mm, And there'd be days mm -hmm. where I was just not feeling like writing. So that could be a day where I don't have to be as creative and I just have to get some of the busy work out of the way. You know, there there are different ways to approach this. So very much like I approach it the same way that I write more complicated articles. I think that there are times where it's like, oh man, this seems so daunting, (laughs) but there's a part of this that I can get finished without having to think about it. It's just the busy work. It's just the facts. It's just the uh, research. So yeah. do that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then the other stuff will fall into place. And that's kind of how it worked. It ever, all the pieces fell together once I, once I started, you know, eliminating some of the obstacles. So this sounds, you wrote it more as a reporter than as say, uh, <laughs> a term we all love, a mixologist. Um, well, I'm not a mixologist. And, that, and that's, that's the part that, that didn't come across for me. I just purchased the cocktail book by Amanda. And so the the fact that it's a reported cocktail book by Amanda is to my mind, even more interesting than here's a hundred or so of Amanda's recipes that Amanda right. put together with Amanda not being a mixologist. So well, that was my goal. I wanted, I wanted this very much to have my own voice and I wanted this to feel like you know, here's my perspective mm. of having lived in this world and living in this world. And and this is how I feel about it. And these are these are the things that I'm observing. It, it really is supposed exactly. to be a very a large overall observance of the city and of what and of what the movement is. So in that case, as the person reporting it, was there something in your research that surprised you? Oh, all the time. <laughs> in good ways, that I hope. That softball question was too soft. Okay, let me put some air in it. <laughs> Send it back to you. What was the thing that surprised you the most? thing that surprised me the most... Oh, God. What surprised me the most? I don't, I don't know how 
to answer that. The thing, the things I can tell you, the things that didn't surprise me, or that even though they didn't surprise me, they still surprised me. Oh, like okay. telling people that I only had six weeks to do this. Could they please sign this piece of paper? And they still don't do it. And it's like you're just signing a piece yep. of paper. Yep. Oh, I, I get that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Like oh, really how hard like I know I know how busy you are, but I'm writing a book in six weeks. You can sign the piece of paper. <laughs> if I could do this in six weeks, so can you with one piece of paper. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I, I- as you talk to the two guys who put on the Whiskey Jubilee New York City, oh, and there yeah, was a finite date to that where things had to be signed and people wouldn't sign them. Yeah, yeah, we just <laughs> need so the two things you're going to put on your table. I just yes. need to know the names of the two things you're going to pour. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. that was one thing, but no. In, in terms of in terms of the industry, what was surprising? Um, how many, when I really had to think about how many bars exist and how many of them serve cocktails Mm. and in how many neighborhoods now, Mm. I think that was, I think that was the most surprising to me because when this whole thing started and when I really became conscious of this movement, it was, you know, the early two thousands when there still wasn't even a really good cocktail bar in my neighborhood Mm. in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn. And now, you know, I'd love to say now there are quite a few, let's hope they're still here. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, so, uh, go ahead, Jason. I want to come I want to come back to cocktail. I want to get a little bit sad for a minute here and then we'll bring it back out and we'll talk specific cocktails okay. and cheer it up again. Yeah. But clearly what we're living through and clearly what you're starting to speak to. You you live this life in New York City. Yeah. You're seeing what COVID-19 is currently doing to to New York City. What do you see for for bar owners, for bartenders, mixologists coming out the other side of this? Do, do you think it's going to be this barren landscape? Do you think some will survive? Who do you think will survive? Just what, what do you see when you look at what's happening? What do you see for the future? Well, one thing I should tell you in answering this question is I was um, up until a couple of weeks ago working on another book. Mm-hmm. Um, my second book for the same publisher was called Drink Like a Local, again, part of a series, but I was writing the very first one and it was about, it was supposed to be about New York and I was supposed to profile, um, I I had a choice between 80 to a hundred bars. I, I settled on 88. It, um, it was to be illustrated and I really, again, felt it was the, on my shoulders to if you're going to write a book about locals really go out there in the neighborhoods in new york where people have real locals Mm -hmm. let's you know we we did the the fancy bars in the first book let's do the real local bars in this one and so i went out to the bronx and i had plans to go to staten island and i had gone out to queens and Mm. visited you know like nears tavern which had just been given the stay of execution right when when i signed the contract for the book um and you know and i really thought about what makes a bar a local to people and what's what what makes these watering holes special? And that was something I always had in mind. And also, what would people want to read about mm. that? What would people want to know? What is What does it feel like to drink in these bars? So it's especially heartbreaking to me. And so I, so I was the, the deadline for this book was supposed to be at the end of this month. It was actually supposed to be next week, mm. the end of next week. Hmm. And um, uh, mid March, when everything shut down, I contacted my publisher. I said I can finish it. 
it's going to be tone deaf. Yeah, we right. We can't write this cute, fluffy book about drinking in locals yep. when we don't even know if they're going to exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. And so I killed it. I, well, I didn't kill it. I postponed it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if you look on Amazon, there's actually a title. And oh. there, it's there. Um, it's saying coming in 2021, Lord knows when. But um, so to answer your question, sorry, that was a very long roundabout no, 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 that's way perfect. to get there. What does it take? I mean, I'm looking at certain things like my friend, my dear friend, Mike. I don't know. You, you guys know Mike. Mike um, Bacharezzi, who, who's got. Yeah, I was just texting yep, with him this guy. morning. Cool. <laughs> so Mike, so Mike is, is keeping the lights dimmed. Um, shall we say, you know, he's, he's making a really good go of it by, um, by selling bottled cocktails mm. that, and, and, you know, flights of things and, and they started deliveries on Saturdays and it's actually doing fairly well. Yeah. Good. You know, it's, um, it, people are responding and, and it really shows that the locals, the regulars in, in that bar really care about it and they're supporting him still. Mm-hmm. Well, well, he's a great guy. Whenever you speak to him, he just talks about how local he is and how local he serves and how his prices are designed to fit locals. Not those who would go searching out cheaper booze in New York City, but the locals who can he serve. He's a wonderful guy. And both the last time I spoke to him and I think every time Joshua speaks to him, we want to interview him for One Nation Under Whiskey. Mm -hmm. And so we need to speed that up and make that happen as well. Yeah. Now he's a terrific guy and, and, but it, it really speaks to, to the scene that he set leading up to this. And so people, so people really want to see that place survive. And so they're doing what they can to support him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've seen places that have kind of given up, mm. not, they're not really doing anything. They're not saying anything on social media. They're not, they're not offering any kind of community service yeah. in any way. You know, it's one thing to to and and this I completely respect a decision to to stay completely shut down during this time for the health and safety of the people in the bar and their families, sure. and that makes complete sense to me. But then, be active in some other way. Hmm. I think I think there's I think there's a way to kind of still be present and not just be like, all right, see you in a few months. I don't know. Hmm. Or maybe they have the money to do that. But then if they have the money to do that, then really throw it at something else that's going to help support mm. the community. I mean, that's that's something that I think is important. And and then there are bars that are really trying that I think are not going to make it. They just not for not for lack of trying just because. I don't know. It's just too much. Sure. Well, it seems yeah. like New York would be a difficult place to make it even in the best of times. Absolutely. <laughs> Profit <laughs> margins are so slim. So slim. Right? Yeah, that that's the thing I've been learning. I you know, I follow the the chef scene more than the bar scene. Yeah. And and hearing some of the margins that chefs are operating on. And this is Big name TV chefs who have multiple restaurants, or you think, oh, they have made it. You know, yeah. they're they've got one week's worth of money, and then yeah. the whole thing collapses around their ears. Wow! And, yeah. and <laughs> sounds like now they know economy. what it's like to write about them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Do do, do you? That's what happened to me? <laughs> you know, for the last for the last two decades, and 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 I'm sure longer. I've lived in the U.S. for the last two decades. We've been hearing about the resiliency of New York City. Yeah. Do you do you think there's part of that will happen after you know once 
doors start reopening after uh, COVID-19 and after the shutdown? Do you think there'll be this pride of we made it through this difficult time and neighbourhoods came out to support and damn it, we're going to be put back on our feet by by our neighbourhoods? This is very complicated. We've We've experienced shutdowns before which were always community-based, you know, mm-hmm. there, when things had to shut down because of 9-11, because the borders for the bridges were closed, oh. the bridges and the tunnels were closed, yeah. and people couldn't get supplies, um, and things were shut down for a week or two. We knew that that was finite, and we knew that once the supply chain opened again, that everything was going to go back to normal. Yeah, the places were going to take a hit for being closed for one or two weeks, but it was one or two weeks. Mm. And when Sandy hit, and yeah, there were places that you know suffered. Um, they had to they had to make you know a lot of repairs. Their a lot of their property was damaged, or um, you know it just took so long for them to get the lights back on. And and but again, it was like okay, we knew once these repairs were made, once once supplies could come in again and they could they could turn the lights on again, the people were going to gather and support them. Mm-hmm. There's none of that right now. And mm. even if anything opens right now, it's going to feel like a pet cemetery version of what that once was. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think I think that like for instance going to going to bars when they reopen again, which I think is going to unfortunately be a very long time. Um people are going to have to sit very far apart. Mm. The drinks not going to be prepared in front of you. Likely they're going to have to just pour it from a bottle. You know, because for for sanitary reasons, they they can't just you're not going to be squeezing limes and mm-hmm. and you know doing all oh, of this wow. in front of people. Yeah. It would just it, and you know and having those things exposed to the air, hmm. it just can't happen. Hmm. Um, and so, and I can't imagine making money, at, you know, making any sort of profit under that kind of environment. Yeah. Oh wow, I hadn't even thought of all it's that. Gonna, the, <laughs> The whole the sterility of going out is going to make it not very attractive to do so, mm-hmm. and I'm also I'm also wondering just in terms of what's going on with the liquor laws too. You know they've changed them, thank goodness, to um, for the first time since prohibition to mm. allow you know basically it's like New Orleans people are drinking in the streets with open containers because yeah. they yeah. can, <laughs> you know, which is lovely, which is fun. Um, <laughs> but not exactly how things are supposed to be and the whole reason why we have bars. And so what's going to happen there? And is that going to be taken away? I mean, there's just, there's so many unanswered questions and I, and I, and you know, I feel really terrible for these people mm. and, and they're scared and they have a reason to be scared. Yeah. There's just so much uncertainty. It's, it's not the same as any other time this has ever happened. Interesting. Uh, thanks for that, Amanda. That's a, that's a thorough answer from somebody who knows what they're talking about. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else to ask there, Joshua? I, I know I've been kind of taking the lion's share of the questions. No, that's that's okay. No, you know, you just you really, Amanda. You you made me think about what getting back to normal will look like, and an, yeah, and something that that we don't often think about is just really how long it might take to get back to normal. I think e- yeah. even when all restrictions are, are 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 lifted, or at least the majority of restrictions are lifted, I think all this is going to change the way we interact with people. Yeah, which is very uh, much so. Which is unfortunate, but but I'm determined to get us out of this very sad. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. I know Spot it's, Spot it's a bummer. I don't even have a glass of whiskey in front of me, and I'm getting melancholy. <laughs> Interviewing a spirits writer at 9 a.m. over Zoom—it it just all seems a little weird. It is, <laughs> but I mean, I've got coffee and water. Yeah. We're doing our yeah. best here. I—I—I um, I, I, I did have a question, uh, just to bring us back to cocktails. Uh, but I did want to talk with whiskey with you as well, and I'm hoping we can get to cool. that too. Yes. So obviously. You're not a mixologist. I'm not a mixologist. Jason is, I, I don't know, he, he is definitely a home mixologist these days. Um, I, I've got a, I only do it so I can wear a leather apron. That's the only reason I do it. I only do it so I can get neck tattoos. That's the only reason why I make cocktails. Yeah, I don't wear pants with my leather apron either. Well, you're Scottish, I mean. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> You're used to that. <laughs> um, but but I, I have a I have a host of cocktail books, and and for the for the most part, you know the the reason why I would get cocktail books is so I knew how to make cocktails, uh, and yeah. and then I started buying cocktail books because my friends are coming out with cocktail books. And I said I got to support him. I've got to support her. And now I've I've yeah. got all these great books with all these great recipes. However. Take that book plus me plus all of the ingredients and all of the tools to make said cocktail, and I'm still <laughs> shit at making said cocktail. And and I don't know where that disconnect is. And I'm curious if I, either through the lens of this book or through your own, you know, journey in 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 spirits, if if you were there and how you overcame that, and what are some tricks. That, that you have, you know, again, as an admitted non-mixologist for people yeah. who want to make it home, what would you tell people who are just friggin' hopeless when it comes to making cocktails? Well, and if I can just add on to the end of this, and as somebody who just taught her parents how to make old fashions over <laughs> Zoom uh, last week. So uh-huh. you, you have a level of expertise here, Amanda. Um. Well, what is the, the what do you say when you say that you're shit at making cocktails? <laughs> what about it are you shit at? What what happens? The execution doesn't work. It doesn't taste right. It just doesn't taste right, you know. And 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 maybe it's maybe it's similar to you know g- going to a distillery and all of a sudden that whiskey tastes better. Or mm-hmm. you know, I remember back in two thousand going to going to Guinness in in Ireland to the the warehouse tour, and that Guinness at the end of the tour was the best beer I ever drank in sure. my life. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just the cocktail tastes better because you're you're in a bar, you're with friends, you're seeing the you know the the bartender, you know, act like. Uh, Tom Cruise, um, and 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 all of a sudden you have this beautiful cocktail in front of you, and you're having a great time. Now I'll yeah. I'll take that same cocktail, I'll make it at home, and and it just doesn't taste as good. And I I don't know if it's me or if it's just an environmental thing, and that is the the true value or one of the true values of uh, of bars. I, I I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's mental or if it's me or. That could be the same thing. <laughs> Bars have access to equipment that you don't, okay. first of all. And so their ice may be a whole lot better than your ice. Oh, okay. And that may have a lot to do with it. Oh. And 
the glassware matters and what detergent you use to, to wash it. I mean, that's, that's a flavor thing Mm. that's there. Um, the ingredients they have might be slightly different than what you have. And, and it's, you know, optimized for you for pure cocktail enjoyment Mm. at the bar, not so much at home. There, there are a few things there. And yes, yeah, it's the toast thing. Listen, I can make toast at home. It's not going to taste nearly as good as it would in a diner. Just <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> slathered with butter. Just not. <laughs> yeah, we, we have an expression at home that it, it's like a sandwich. Yeah. And so it all started because when somebody makes you a sandwich, it's so much better than any sandwich you ever make for yourself. Oh, yeah. But we've now extended that into... You know, making the bed is it's a lot like a sandwich. And so somebody else making the bed, so much better than when so you make true. the bed yourself. Holy so God. true. The question I was gonna ask you, Joshua, is have you, you you obviously entertain at your house? Have you entertained with cocktails at your house? The closest I ever got to that. Sorry, I don't know why, but I suddenly had an image of you like wearing like a flowery <laughs> kind of tiara with rockets. Like I'm entertaining. <laughs> so you've seen the that image checks then. out. <laughs> I think that tracks. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And now I'm entertaining with cocktails. I'm shaking a pineapple, you know. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. singing all sorts of Latin classics. That was me. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Whole Carmen Miranda routine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, go on. Uh, <laughs> so, wow, you really get the spirit of our podcast, Amanda. I like this. <laughs> um, so, so I have, I have done it. I've done it three times where I've entertained with a signature cocktail. Okay. Oh, okay. And uh, the first time, I, I don't know, I don't even know why we were doing this. We were doing some sort of a, um, a what's that big horse race? The Kentucky Derby. The Kentucky Derby. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I decided to yeah. make uh, a pitcher of mint julep for us all mm. to drink. Ooh. And... And I think that tasted pretty good. I was pretty happy with that, and, and people seemed to enjoy that. Uh, the second time, so I had I had these friends who were who were getting married, and they wanted me to design a signature cocktail for them, because you know I'm I'm the spirits guy, but they didn't know that I'm not like a bar like I'm just a whiskey guy and nothing more. But but they asked they asked a favor of me. And I had to, I had to come through. The last thing I wanted to do was 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 get a cocktail book and just make a cocktail that seemed nice. I wanted to create my own. So my friends who were getting married, uh, this was I don't know a few years back. It wasn't too long after all fifty states legalized same sex marriage, and so they were very excited okay. to 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 get married. Two women, and. Um, I made this gin cocktail that I found out later. It's nothing more than a gin fizz. That's all it is, is a gin fizz. <laughs> um, so I didn't actually... But it was some bartender who like put his name on it and, <laughs> and changed like one ingredient or something, basically. <laughs> Basic, well, yeah. So I think, I think 
I have the recipe somewhere, but what I what I did was basically gin fizz with something else in there. I don't remember quite what it was, um, but I remember a it was it was a decent cocktail, and B the best part about it was was the name. Um, I was just watching uh, a Weird Al Yankovic thing. And in one of his songs, he said something about a, a cunning linguist. And I said, that would be really oh, funny for, for oh, a lesbian man. wedding. And um, Bless you. <laughs> the great thing. So w- one, of, uh, one of the women, she, she's very serious. And, and she came to me. She said, I love the drink, but please know it's not just lesbians that, joy, that enjoy cunnilingus. <laughs> And then, and then my other friend just absolutely loved it, and and it cracked her up. So, so I don't know what was better. That's that should be, that should definitely be the name of a song. It's not just lesbians who enjoy cunnilingus. <laughs> I like how that point had to be clearly denoted. Right? Like, please, please understand. Thank you. I've put it in my notebook for the day. But go. Cool. That is so good. That has to be. That has to be an album title, though. Like, oh, absolutely. did you did you get the new? Uh, uh, the uh, Smash Face album. It's not just <laughs> lesbians who enjoy cunnilingus. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and, and then, and then, finally, <laughs> right around you know Christmas Hanukkah time, we had we had people over, and I just made a few pictures of cinnamon toast crunch. Uh-huh. Which do you know what cinnamon toast crunch is? I, I absolutely yeah, do. Yeah, of course it's, you do. It's, it's so delicious. It's so... It shouldn't be. It shouldn't it's be. It's not allowed to exist. It shouldn't it shouldn't exist. exist. And it's just... It's... Yeah. Do you know what it is, Jason? It's so good. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's three parts rum chata, one part, oh. which is delicious, fireball right? Yeah, one part fireball. <laughs> and, and then one part, they suggest vanilla vodka, but you really don't need the vanilla vodka. No, you don't. Uh, the rum chata has plenty of vanilla has in it. Has plenty of vanilla. Oh and, and so that's it. And so I just put that in a picture it's and I chilled stupid it. stupid good. And it was so yeah. damn <laughs> good. Stupid but it's, good. it's like, you know, it's a, a fairly brainless cocktail. You don't have to do much yeah. with it. But you brought up a real... Or after. Or, or after, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you bring up a really interesting point about even simply the quality of ice could change your mm-hmm. change the quality of oh, your yeah. cocktail like oh sure i have i have a whole house filter how is my water not that <laughs> like it should be great well, right okay but here's the thing so i i've been doing something that has made a massive difference for me Ooh. when you make your ice do you put it in anything after it's been made or does it just sit in the freezer um, I, I just, I put it in the tray and I put it in the freezer. Yeah. I, I bag mine in a Ziploc. Yep. Ding, 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 ding. bag <clears throat> it in a Ziploc? Mm-hmm. What yep. does that do? It keeps it from absorbing the odors of your refrigerator and freezer. Makes a massive difference. But how, how will my ice taste like Morningstar Farm chick nuggets? <laughs> if, if I put... It does... Taste taste the ones exposed to air and do this do this um with other ice and you will taste a massive difference. Wow. 
Yeah. yeah. So that, and you want to go through your ice quite quickly. You don't want to make a yeah. big batch and then go through it slowly. Right. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Look at me. <laughs> There's a thing I do. There's a thing he does. You <laughs> didn't have to be told. He just knew. <laughs> instinct. Okay. So, so ice instinct. So bag your ice. <laughs> Which is the B side too. <laughs> bag your ice. Not just lesbians bag ice, Amanda. Right. <laughs> That's the thing. bag your ice. <laughs> I've lost Josh. I'm on the silent That's laugh. A perfect side. <laughs> bag your ice. Off Smash Faces. It's not only lesbians Crazy. I, I'm glad we can do this stone cold sober early on a Monday morning. I know. I know. <laughs> oh gosh. We would be dangerous late on a Friday night together. Oh, gosh, that's so wonderful. <sighs> it is. Oh. So, it so, is. so I wanted to bring up a, a quick thing about cocktails as well, Amanda. Sure. <laughs> one of the one of the issues that that I often run into is I only I only started getting into cocktails in the last few years. I've always been a whiskey guy whiskey and beer that's me through and through yeah and so as i'm looking to explore cocktails and i'm reading cocktail recipes there's invariably one or two ingredients that a i've either don't own or never heard of mm. and and it's uh, you know frustrating with a, a small f i don't i don't get too upset about it but i but there just there seems to be so many potential ingredients yes. for such a range of cocktails that I always end back up in a bourbon cocktail, a rye cocktail, maybe a gin cocktail. But, you know, just the other week, I, I bought a bottle of Averna. First bottle of Averna mm. I've owned in my life. Mm. And heard of it. I love Averna. It's, it's so delicious. good. It's so good. So delicious. And I've now fallen in love with the Black Manhattan. That's such a good drink. Right? But I only have really good maraschino cherries. I don't have brandy cherries. And I can ah. tell from the flavor profile of the of the Black Manhattan that a brandy cherry would be unbelievable in it. And, and so how do you live that life? Do, are you knowledgeable enough that you can substitute something? Do you... Yeah flow on without it do you know the other cocktail to pivot to that would give you that flavor profile how, how do you deal with that when you know we're on lockdown and you're missing yes. an ingredient so many so many answers to that question so first of all lockdowns actually taught me a lot about um making substitutes for things mm -hmm. and and very and very and almost um such good substitutes i don't even know if i want to go back to the old way of doing them mm. um for instance for your cherries you could absolutely take some dried cherries and some brandy, mm. steep them for a little while. The brandy itself will be delicious to drink later, so so keep that. But <laughs> but strain the cherries out of them. They've reconstituted now, and you have brandy cherries. Wow. There you wow. Go. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> um, and save the maraschinos for something else. Um, maraschinos, I should say. Oh, um, right. The, uh, for things like, like one of the things that I, the, one of the videos that I love from last week, um, Souther Teague, um, recorded a cocktail video where he made like a rye tie, 
with Ooh. he didn't have orjat. You have to have orjat to make a, a mai tai. Didn't want to make the orjat, which is something you could do, but it's you know a little bit time consuming. It'll what take is orjat? A few days. Orjat is like a like an almond simple syrup oh, okay. in a way. That's okay. the key ingredient to a lot of tiki drinks. Mm. Um, it's more complicated than saying it's like an almost like an almond milk, a whole, like an almond milk, very aromatic, very lovely flavor that love great dimension that it brings to the drink. Okay. He cheated it by using oat milk and peanut butter. Awesome. Whoa. <laughs> peanut butter orjat. So genius. And then it just made me think about all the possibilities of the crazy nut butters I have lying around my apartment uh-huh. and all the different orjats I can make with them for a single drink. So I don't have to mix up an entire batch of orjat that could go bad. Mm-hmm. I can just take a little scoop of peanut butter, a little scoop of, of pistachio butter, even tahini. Oh, and, yeah. and make it that uh, way and okay. it would be absolutely amazing it would make a really great drink so that's fun if you need an orange if you need some sort of a liqueur don't want to buy a whole bottle of it use jam and yes. maybe and maybe change the ratio of booze a little bit maybe make it a little bit boozier since you don't have that liqueur aspect you know do something else to the drink that's going to boost that wait, wait, i'm sorry flavor profile. What, do you, what do you mean use use jam like yeah, I like I just sent jam. you a recipe last week. There was a a monkey shoulder recipe that I came upon for a cocktail, yeah. and jam was one of the ingredients. And yeah. I and I said, you know, yeah, I probably wouldn't use monkey shoulder in this because I don't have any on my shelves. But I'd I'd reach for something by Compass Box. But yeah, there was jam in that recipe. Sure, jam is jam is an amazing substitute if you don't have the fruit liqueur. You know, and it comes in a variety of flavors, and it's great to have around the house anyway, and it lasts forever. Whoa. Yeah. So, huh. and so that's, that's a, and you know, you just, you have to double, you probably have to double strain your cocktail so you don't get, cause sometimes, you know, there's some seeds or some, oh, some solids yeah, in there yeah. that could get into the cocktail. Yeah. So just double strain it when yeah. you, when you pour it out and it'll be fantastic. Oh, I just picked up some seedless raspberry to put on matzo. And so See? I, I might have to start experimenting with seedless raspberry jam now. Uh-huh. So, and you can make liqueurs out of, you know, dried fruits and steeping them in, in a neutral grain spirit of some kind. I was actually going to try to make an apricot liqueur this week because I can't seem to find a bottle of Luxardo, which is my favorite, but or the House Alpens one. So I was like, all right, fine. Well, <laughs> I'm going to do this instead because I want gin blossoms, damn it. <laughs> I'm going to have gin blossoms come hell or high water. And it seems that we're getting both right now. So <laughs> come at me, hell or high water. I'm going to have my, my apricot liqueur. <laughs> I like the the reverse engineering of that. Not okay. I've got ingredients A, B, C. What can I make? You're like, I want this cocktail, damn it, and I will now invent each of the items that goes into it. Yep. Sometimes you got to do it. Like I made, I made my own. Um, I, I'm one of the things that I really miss drinking in bars is Gibson's. I really oh, love Gibson's, yeah. and I made my own cocktail onions the other week. It does not feel like drinking a Gibson in a bar at all, but at least it was a little bit comforting. It was nice. So I, I, I drank a Gibson and watched Cheers and I felt a little bit better. Um, coach or... Um, yeah, we just discussed Coach or Woody. Or Woody. Woody. Coach. coach. Oh, Coach Era. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Coach Era. Yeah, I started from the very beginning. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, in the absence of Coachella, we'll have Coach Era. Coach Era. And what was really interesting is there was, you know how they do the cold opening where they start the show and they just do like one little kind of like one off thing before they roll the credits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was there was a part where there, there was a um, 
someone who comes to the bar and, and Sam says, hey, how's your new job going? And he says that he's working as a janitor in a, um, a lab that grows viruses. And, <laughs> and so he leaves the bar and all of a sudden they start wiping down the bar, like furiously wiping down the bar, like tag TV didn't throw in rags around. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. 1984 foreshadowing. Yeah, so much yeah. of this Back to the Future 2 predicted the future. Yeah, okay, check out Coach Era <laughs> Cheers, okay? It's amazing. No, you can actually find the clip. It's it's like a minute and a half long. It's pure gold. <laughs> it's so good. Like, even Norm is wiping down the bar. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, oh uh, man. There was a comment I was going to make out of that, and now I don't remember what the comment was. That was too funny. <laughs> That was good. Yeah, how, how did that? Um, how did that start? Did you did, did you have a question there? and get sidetracked? Gibson's homemade. Oh, I was going to say substitutes. YouTube actually has. <clears throat> YouTube actually has two hours of background bar noise you can play. I know. And so I'm there, not there yet. I'm gonna yeah. be. There have been, be there been soon. There have been days I've dipped <laughs> into it. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's not particularly satisfying. Um, you you clearly are still sitting in your house by yourself with a yeah. cocktail that you made just for yourself. Yeah, I'd find it. I'd find it upsetting. I think I would find it upsetting. Yeah. I don't know if I could the, do it. The New York Times had a piece the other day that linked to a six-hour video of sheep in a field. Yes, um, I saw that. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a a winery, maybe in Napa. Yeah, but, but at I least think you can see the sheep. Yes, which yes, is another track on on the album. At least you could see the sheep. At least you could see the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> they, they move very slowly. Apparently, it, it turns out it's one hour of video that's looped six times. Oh, and I see. so just as you've started to see the sheep move, they all reassume their positions. Uh, Amazing. Like, yeah. It, yeah it, I think it's the ultimate conspiracy video, right? You feel like Truman in the Truman Show. Where you're like, yes. I'm sure, like, watch this. On the hour, this sheep will be back right there. He's going to come round the corner again. Watch this. Oh, that's so <laughs> Fantastic. That's great. The sheep just keep reassuming their positions. So. Oh, man. Okay, so, so uh, Joshua, are you going to pivot us out of cocktails and onto the whiskey questions that you wanted well, to ask? Well, yeah, you know, I was I was trying to think... I was actually trying to think of the first Excuse time me. that you and I met. Was it on a whiskey cruise? <laughs> Highly possible. To the Caribbean? <laughs> so was it on Remember that cruises? Disney whiskey cruise? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I'm, 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 yeah, poor Goofy just absolutely got schnoggered <laughs> on the... On the <laughs> too much Highland Park for Goofy. <laughs> And goddamn Donald Duck just could ask me what the most expensive one on the table was. Classic Donald Duck. I know. He's such an asshole. Pantsless dick. Wow. He has a, his new whiskey coming out, though, called Duck Do. Have you heard about that? Duck Do? <laughs> yeah. It has a capsule, but no label. No label. But, um, so, but, but I have a feeling that you and I met either on the Whiskey Guild cruise or maybe at a whiskey fest or something like that. But, but you, yeah. and, and I could be totally wrong, but, but you were there 
um, as you know, as, a, as in a whiskey writer capacity, I think for alcohol professor, I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is where did <laughs> your where did your very whiskey writing from the end of Wizard of Oz? Where did your whiskey writing um, start? Did it did it start in whiskey? Has it? Um, you know, you do freelance here and there. Like, let's talk about your your writing overall and how that started. I've always been a writer, and when I entered the business, so I, I started as a sommelier actually. Um, when I entered the business, and I was already in my early thirties, and and not quite <laughs> thinking this through. That wait a second, I don't I don't know if I'm old, and you know, I don't I think I might be too old to have a career where I'm on my feet all night. <clears throat> Maybe I need to think about this for a second. So I went into the retail end of things after after being a sommelier for exactly two weeks <laughs> after passing my exam, oh, and wow. I um <clears throat> yeah I just hated it, and I um. I started working at Aster and um, on the floor at Aster, I was pulled aside by the general manager, Bill Kenny, who said, you know, you seem to know a little bit about whiskey. I've noticed that you're able to engage with customers about it. And I knew a little bit because I liked the stuff and my family, you know, we would have like a cocktail hour where my, where we have some whiskey, probably Talisker or something like this. Mm. And uh, he said, well, if we cultivate this, if we turn this into a thing, maybe you could become my assistant spirits buyer. Yeah. And eventually I became that. And part of that job was writing. Part of that job involved mm-hmm. having to write part of the flyer that they used to um, hand out at Aster and, and some of the um, uh, some of the entries for the website, you know, describing the whiskey, some tasting notes and, and shelf talkers and that sort of thing. And um, there was somebody who came to the store and just said, hey, who wrote this? And I was like, actually, I did. And they said, you should be writing. You should be, you should actually be, be writing like real articles about alcohol. You seem to know what you're doing. But why don't we, why don't we get that started? And so I think, um, I forget who now I ended up writing my first couple of articles for, but it was gratis, of course, the way things start these days with the internet and all of that. And eventually when, think of the exposure. Yeah. Exposure. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but eventually when uh, the first time the economy danked in 2008 (laughs) and I was a buyer at Morel and, and was soon laid off, um, I decided I wasn't going to be in on the retail end of things anymore. And I wanted to write full time and I just clawed my way into this. Okay. Mm -hmm through that and it was a lot of whiskey writing because that's what i know and they say write what you know um but then you know cocktails came out of it and i started learning more about you know agave spirits and gin and rum and all of these things and i already knew about wine so i wanted i didn't want to abandon that entirely Mm. i know a lot of i know a lot of spirits writers who might have started in wine and just don't really do wine anymore but i want to do both it's very important Mm. for me to be by spiritual as i say so (laughs) Buy spiritual. <laughs> yes. Are you here to buy or are you just spiritual? <laughs> polytheistic. Wow. I'm po- I am polytheistic. It's true. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So that's how that all started. And I just, I, I think just kind of one thing led to another, you know, exposure does work. Um, <laughs> but eventually you also have to insist on getting paid. And once I did that, and when I started getting paid gigs, I just got more of them. And then alcohol professor happened and it kind of went from there. Wow. Do you find yourself coming back to a particular spirit type? Like, you know, whiskey, is that something that, that always pulls you back or is it wine that pulls oh, yeah. you back? Is it whiskey? 
Well, it's both. It's I would both, say yeah. it's interesting what I've been turning to in lockdown. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, and I and I am very fortunate to be locked in with a pretty significant there's lakes and lakes of really good things to drink. I'll never get through it, even if we're in this for a couple of years, which I hope we aren't. Uh-huh. But um, but you know, I have a lot of really great whiskey that I'm finally tapping into and getting a chance to enjoy and mm. and tasting new things. I'm actually gonna um, when I get off the phone. With you guys, I'm going to be talking to Chris Morris um, about the new release from Woodford Reserve, oh, which nice. will be fun. Um, and I've never really had a prolonged conversation with him by myself, so that'll be that'll be interesting too. But yeah, <laughs> a lot of whiskey, but then a lot of wine. I've been drinking, I've been drinking some wine, and I and I opened oh, last week. I started getting very angry about a lot of things. I started getting frustrated. I started just getting feeling kind of like helpless and. Mm. And and also just creatively a bit paralyzed. It's been it's been very hard to to figure out how to report during this time and what what the right tack to take is sure. and and mm-hmm. what um, how to keep it classy and how to keep it engaging and and there are parts you know there are times I just want to kind of like strip away all the layers and and write something deeply personal and 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 huge about what it's been like to go through this by myself. But also I have to I have to you know, keep composure too and be the editor in chief of alcohol professor and also do the reporting I do for Bloomberg and other stuff. Yeah. And so I was just really feeling the walls coming in and I was like, walls coming in dungeon. Oh my God. I have a bottle of you dungeon. <gasps> so opening that, <laughs> you know, and it was like the baller vintage too, like 2005 view dungeon. Like oh, that's it. I'm opening yes, this I bottle. I saw you post a picture of that. <sighs> happen and i'm so glad i did and i had planned to drink that by myself anyway i'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) sorry to my family and any of my friends who are hoping to get some always gonna be me (laughs) but you're always gonna be enjoying that vicariously through me so and there just suddenly seemed like no better night i'm glad you enjoyed it It did you polish off the bottle in one night you know, it's going to go bad if it stays open. Hey, hey I'm not judging you. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, this is a safe space. <laughs> slowly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it, very slowly I did. Yes. Uh-huh. That's the thing. When you start drinking at 2 p.m., you can finish a bottle by the time you go to bed. You, know, you can still <laughs> yes. go to bed at a sensible hour. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, any whiskey that's been fitting the, the moment, fitting the mood? Well, like the Vieux Donjon, I've been I've been saving a few things, and you know, like if things get really dire, I'm finally going to drink the last couple of thimbles of of Yamazaki Sherry cask that I have mm. <laughs> <laughs> that I've been you know slowly putting into smaller bottles so it doesn't doesn't oxidize. Um, let's see, I have. I have some really fun bourbon that I haven't even opened yet that I think I need to to mm. get into. I'm really and I you know things that I tasted um, just samples of that you know now that I have the larger bottles I'd really like to have them like the the new bakers um, uh, what are they calling that it's called a small batch. Oh now, yeah, with all, all the the whole new and, packaging and everything. Yeah, yeah, it looks really nice. But that's great. I'm loving I'm loving the Heaven Hill bottled and bond. Um, oh, the seven year old. Yeah, that's delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what have I got I mean I still have the samples from Buffalo Trace from the antique collection that I'd like to go through now right especially since especially since they're you know so overproof (laughs) (laughs) they've got to be able to kill whatever bug is trying to crawl into me so (laughs) 
let's let's stag this puppy. <laughs> let's just do this. <laughs> and there's a bunch of stuff, and and I have I have some cool little scotches and bits of Laphroaig and. Um, you know, if I'm in a smoky scotch mood, which I often am at the end of the night, but also having cognac, really enjoying cognac right. these days. Oh, good to hear. Some good Ferrand and some very good, um, some Camus and, and actually the, at the end of the night, the other day I said out loud to my empty apartment, Camus, take me away. <laughs> <laughs> which at the end of the bottle, you are no longer a stranger. Oh, exactly. God, you beat me to it. God damn it. Ah. So well done. So well yeah. done. Yeah. Oh man. Hell is other bottles. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so, well, uh, I want to because I know you've got you've got a call happening in about twenty minutes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I want to leave on this, which may be a difficult uh, question to answer <laughs> given how dark these times are. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's but, a good we went there. And again, we didn't even drink whiskey. We went there. <laughs> uh, if we'd been drinking whiskey when we went there, we might not have come back from that. Exactly. <laughs> That's, do we want to come back? <laughs> but, but what about the the spirits industry? You know, re- regardless of, of which facet of it, what has you excited right now? Like when, when the world gets back to normal, what has been trending or what have you been looking forward to that's 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 got you excited about spirits i can't wait to be able to hug everybody again Mm. (laughs) no i'm serious it's the people right it's the people i really you know like it's funny i was thinking about things like bcb and it's not even and, and of course it's exciting to taste new things and engage with people about the spirits and about the cocktails but I just love the hang of that. I love the community of it and the and, and having everybody together in one place and I miss that. I miss seeing everybody together and, and I haven't been I haven't been engaging in these like big virtual happy hours because they depress me. And I don't and I don't really want to be doing this from my living room. Yeah. And I don't I don't I, it's not the same to me and I don't want to do something that's simulated. It's gonna it's gonna upset me and, and and I'm also just a, um, you know, I'm a bit of an introvert. And so if I'm going to be in that atmosphere, I want to be in that atmosphere for real. I don't want to <laughs> have to recreate it in my house. So that's my, my biggest answer is just being able to see everybody, um, being able to taste things again normally without this kind of ritual of gloves and masks and, and yeah. um you know, I miss sharing glasses. Here, taste this. Yeah. Is this weird? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and and just just stuff like that, like just being able to have that shared experience with everybody without this synthetic layer to swim through. Yeah, yeah. I definitely hope you go ahead with the book. I think writing a book on the local bar scene post all of this yeah. would be absolutely fascinating and would be a living history in the moment. Mm. Yeah, uh, I, I think it would be a tremendous read once doors start reopening and what what it yeah. looks like, what the culture looks like. Well, that's what I want. That's also why I, I, dem- I really, really put my foot down and insisted that we put this on hold because we don't know what the other side looks like yet. Yeah. And I didn't feel yeah. it would be right to, to complete the book without knowing and then just having it come out. And, and I really want, you know, I have this opportunity to write one of the very first books about the New York City bar world while this is happening and while there's a thread of it not coming back or not yeah. coming back the yeah. way we remembered and Absolutely. so it's it's got to be that history 
Yeah, I think when you, you mentioned it being tone deaf, to my ear it sounded like a tombstone. Here lies yeah. all of these bars that. that were tremendous. Mm. You know, I don't want that. Write it coming out the other side and see see the resilience, see the neighbourhoods that came back to supporting their, their local. I, I think it could be a tremendous read, especially yeah. in your hands, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, well, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for thinking of me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, and and please accept, A, my sincere apologies that it took me three years to buy your book. And That's okay. Three years was like 18 years ago. (laughs) Right. And and our sincere apologies that it took us this long to get you on the podcast as well. Yep. Yep. Too long. Way too long. Yeah. It's been absolutely, even just sitting, talking to you has been tremendous. The interview has been wonderful. Just talking to you has been lovely. Thank you. Amanda, thank you so much for for taking out the time. I know nowadays it's 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 a bit easier given that we're all home and, and doing far less. But we we do definitely have uh, a calendar to look at, and you had another Zoom conversation just just after that so so anyway we appreciate you taking out the time allowing us to have this 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 detour and talking about cocktails well and the three of us lamented the same thing conversations like that like we conduct for one nation under whiskey they're all better in person with a dram having a chat saying hi with a hug saying bye with a hug yeah doing it on technology, we can make it work. Mm-hmm. We're clearly social animals. And, yes. and and part of the fun of even having the podcast is getting to see people who we cherish, who mm-hmm. we enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, and Amanda squarely fits in that category. Not seeing her in New York is, is sad. And I say that as somebody who almost never gets to New York. <laughs> but when I, when I do, seeing Amanda is often a highlight of that. So. Yeah. So yeah, we we may do with the best we had, but we definitely owe her hugs the next time we see her. That we do, indeed. Uh, We have a little bit of news that we're going to need to share. And we have an email. And then I have um, a little treat for everybody. Look at that, Jason's surprised face. I hadn't even told him. I hope it's not your elephant impression, because that is not going to work on a podcast. Okay, now put your penis away. (laughs) Excuse me while I whip this out. So let's wake the paper boy. Can't remember the last time we woke the paper boy. Well, I'm glad we actually have some news to, to... to report so the, the paper boy can can stop hibernating. Now He's a paper bear. A paper bear. <laughs> paper bear. What the fuck are you talking about? Bears hibernate. Paper uh, boy. Paper boy. Paper bear. Uh, okay. Yeah, they're always better when you explain them. <laughs> so here we are, it's May 6th. And the single cast nation release number six has hit our shores. And is starting to find its way onto retail shelves, finally, thankfully. 
I'm very it excited. Is. Yeah. 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 It's, I feel like each time we put out a release, there's a story attached to it about why it's coming out now and when did you select it all? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah, there's just the last two years of doing business have been difficult. There's just no other way to say it. Yeah, between government shutdowns and uh, COVID tariffs. issues and tariffs, like it's it's all just so much stuff, like slowing us down. It's kind of crazy. It is. It really is. But we we persevere, and you know, we yeah. continue to have new releases, which is the focus of yeah. this news segment. Yes, 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 yes is yes. the Actual release. Yeah, so let me. I'm going to try to plow through this somewhat quickly. Um, so we <laughs> regular listeners are <laughs> laughing knowingly that you would even think to utter those words, uh, but here we are. And here we are. Here we are. So six different releases. I'm going to run through them really quickly. We have our 26-year-old Invergordon, uh, which is a single-grain whiskey matured in a first-fill bourbon barrel. There's the 23-year-old Ben Nevis from a second-fill bourbon hogshead. There's the 10-year-old Ruid Vor or Ruid Moore, depending on how you spell it, who's spelling it. Apparently, there's a debate on that, but it's peated whiskey from a, a Highland distillery whose malt goes into a very famous blend. Then there are the two Altmores that we did, an 8-year-old from a first-fill bourbon barrel, a 30-year-old from a first-fill sherry butt, and then finally, a two-year-old from Milk and Honey from a uh, from First Fill Bourbon Barrel. Now, yeah, just yeah, can can I just circle back quickly? Yeah. The yeah. the Altmore Thirty mm-hmm. and the Altmore Eight mm-hmm. is a continuation of a little thing we've been doing. We're trying to within the same retail release have a couple of different ages styles of release from the same distillery. Mm-hmm. And the side-by-side is wonderfully illustrative. Yeah. And so we've we've done it with Clinlish 23 and 9. The older was in sherry, the younger was in bourbon. We've done it with the Lechig 15, the Lechig 13. The younger was in sherry, the older was in bourbon. And now here we've got it with the Altmore 13, the Altmore 8. The older's in first fill sherry, the younger is in ex-bourbon. And... Gosh, there's so much to learn from from exploring a distillery in that way. Yeah, that I'm really excited that we've we've been able to do that again. Yeah, that's been fun, and I hope people are able to to get both and and do the side by side to really show, you know, how expressive the spirit can be, dependent on age and dependent on cask. Am I right in saying the Altmore 30 is the oldest single malt we've put into retail? You are correct. That is 100% correct. That's the oldest one we've put into retail. Because we had the 28-year-old Undisclosed Speyside, which went over fantastically mm-hmm. well. And I think that was the oldest retail single malt. Clearly, we've done 40-something-year-old grain releases which which have been delicious and delightful but yeah i think this is the oldest malt we've done yep it definitely is the the oldest that we've that we've released for the retail range yes now one thing that i wanted to point out and we've talked about it on the podcast and we've mentioned it in other places we as a company 
try to, wherever we can, this is sort of the, the general rule of thumb, we try to target retail pricing to be around $10 per year, right? If you have a 10-year-old whiskey, it's going to be a $100 bottle. Yeah. That, that, that can change, time. right? Um, you know, if it's 10-year-old Laphroaig, that's going to be different because it's an Isla whiskey. If we found a Macallan and it were 10-year-old, you know, that would be more expensive. So it's de- sometimes dependent on region, sometimes dependent on the distillery. Currently, it's dependent on tariffs, so, yes, there are 25% tariffs on whiskeys into the U.S., single malt w- scotch whiskeys into the U.S., but we've worked with our importer, which is Impex Beverages, to uh, we're cutting margins on our end, they're cutting margins on their end, to eliminate as much of the tariffs as possible. So while the 25% tariffs aren't completely eliminated, uh, they yeah. are for the most part eliminated. And to give you an idea, the, the 10-year-old Ruid Vore, without a tariff, it should have been around $100 a bottle, you know, suggested retail price. With the tariff, it would be around $145 suggested retail price. Working with Impex, we were able to bring the suggested retail price to around 115 to 120. So we're doing what we can, but yep. the, yeah. So just keep that in mind as you're as you're looking at retail pricing. Yeah, nothing else to say. There. It's just the ongoing struggle. <laughs> uh, and then to follow that up, we have five casks that we're releasing for online. And one of them is a two-year-old. It's another milk and honey, but this time it's from a first fill rum cask. Then we have an, an eight-year-old Kalila from a sherry butt, a refill sherry butt. We have a nine-year-old Aaron from a first fill bourbon barrel. We have a blended malt, 10-year-old, from a first fill sherry butt. And then finally, we have a rum, a 12-year-old rum from a refill sherry hogshead. Now, just so people are aware, we're working in a new and hopefully temporary normal. Hmm. Our, our aim was to release two casks at a time. So there'd be two casks, another two casks, and then a third release, which would just have one, one cask released. We had that idea for, for two reasons. Our shipper can only ship X number of bottles per week. And if we released all five casks at the same time, if people oh. got, right? Right? If yeah. they got one of each, it, it would take them yeah. forever. So yeah, the, the, the system right now, yeah. the system that we have operated under for eight years is currently so tenuous yeah. that we are paring back as much as we possibly can to have the system continue to work for us. It's incredibly difficult yeah. behind the scenes to get shipping happening. Just like we mentioned earlier in this podcast, I ordered a book from Amazon two and a half, three weeks ago. I haven't seen it. And I have no idea when I will see it. And that's Amazon and their channels <laughs> and their chains of command. That's a really good way to point it right? out. Yeah, yeah. And... And I'm just accepting that and I'm sitting, I know the book will come and I'm just sitting waiting on that happening. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, our, our nation members, 
are good, good people and, and they definitely listen to us and they understand that this is a very different and difficult time. Correct. But I, I, I just bring it up and I'm glad, I'm glad you shared that because you, you, you're, ah, you're actually the person who handles, you know, who deals with our shipper. I do. And, it is my pay grade. <laughs> and, and, and all of the shipping spreadsheets right. and following up and, 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 and all that. So you definitely live it. I only hear about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I will, and I'll say this for the listeners in shipping out around 800 bottles of Pappy, the Pappy nonsense release that we did, mm-hmm. which we released right on the cusp of the shutdown. Mm-hmm. So we made all the sales. We probably had a dozen to maybe 18 issues across all of that. Mm. But that was shipping one release one or two bottles per shipment, per order, per address. Mm-hmm. It was exactly what I talked about earlier. It was a paring down of the system to eradicate problems, potential problems, mm-hmm. and to fit how the system currently works. Yes. And it still took us four full weeks to get all of that out the door. And by now we should have resolved all problems. Um, it, it was kind of interesting. UPS, if you called one number, they had one series of answers. If you called local jurisdictions, you would get another series of answers. Interesting. Okay. And and I, and I'm not you know casting aspersions here. I'm just saying when you're a company the size of UPS, trying to get out one singular message to all of your thousands of depots, yeah, is incredibly difficult. Yeah, and so. You know, some nation members would get one message, our shipper would get one message, I would get one message, and all the messages would be different. Um, <laughs> and thankfully, we only had a dozen to maybe 18 issues, significant problems okay. with the shipping. The rest went as one would expect. Okay. Well, yeah. so with all of that in mind, because we are doing our very best to avoid any shipping issues and and because we're just living in a new world trying to make the absolute best of it uh, what we've decided is we're going to release a cask at a time so we're going to release the milk and honey and when that's sold out and shipped then we're going to release the next one when that's sold out and shipped and so and 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 so on so um, what that does mean for people who are looking to get multiple bottles that they can't spread that $10 flat rate shipping around too much. I mean, granted, you can get two of one release if you want or three of one release if you want to make your dollars uh, stretch a bit further. So we're still doing the $10 flat rate shipping, but we, we can only do so much based on uh, how the world is working right now. And so if you place an order for one bottle, we're going to ship it. We're not holding it for the next release we have to ship a cask at a time. And so yep. we just want to let everybody know up front, we thank everybody for their patience. We will get through this. Uh, we just have to live differently for a little while. Yeah, and to continue with the, the level of honesty that we've established in this podcast, this isn't the best 
scenario for our nation members, for the consumers of single cast nation. Yeah, most definitely, isn't it, it? But it's also not the best situation or scenario for the owners of single cast nation either. It's you know we you know after struggling for a couple of years to get offerings online because I know first world problems. It's a good problem to have. Everything sells out so quickly yeah. that we almost never now have bottles for sale sitting in the online mm. store. Mm. We thought we were bringing in five casks. Yeah, we were bringing in significant volumes. You know, we've got a sherry butt. We've got a sherry hoggy. Um, we've got an opportunity to actually have bottles sitting online, mm-hmm. and that ain't gonna work. So we are instead going to do this piecemeal and so you know we're we're all we're all doing the best we're very fortunate with the nation that we have we're going to do our best our nation members are going to support us their very best and we're all going to just keep putting one foot in front of the other yeah and see if we can get top quality booze to your front doorsteps Mm -hmm. for you to enjoy during a nationwide lockdown even though we're now starting to see the first efforts of lessening the lockdown. And let's see what that looks like. And if we have a follow-up lockdown, who knows what the future will bring. (laughs) We're doing our best and we appreciate the nation understanding that. Yep. Jason, I led us into our news segment. Yeah. I I know we got uh, a nice email that came in a bit ago, and I was hoping that you could, uh, you can introduce that segment of the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. To bring the readers up to speed, we got an email from Nation member Alex Coffin, who's in D.C., and it was a a jolly good email asking uh, some specific questions. And... We read them, I responded to him, and then those questions begat more questions. And so when I got the second email from Alex, I said, hey, great email, great questions. Would you mind if Joshua and I unpicked this Mm -hmm. on the podcast, where it's a little easier for us to wax lyrical and throw in a few more details, finding the time to send long emails is a big ask. Even at this time of lockdown, yeah. we're st- none of us are writing long emails, right? And so he was very gracious. He wrote back immediately, not a problem. Would love for you guys to do that. So I'm actually going to start in the middle of his email because he, <laughs> it is a good length. Uh, Alex you know. gets that a lot, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I'll pick this up here. He, he's got a good paragraph And then he goes into specific questions and we may or may not answer all the questions. We may or may not answer all parts of all questions. But um, he says, another reason I get excited about what you're both doing is the quote unquote peek behind the distillery idea I talk about below. I think folks are under the illusion that they really know a distillery inside out, inside and out, by their standard offerings and single barrel products. Mm. I'll use Knob Creek as an example since I recently did a barrel pick there. Jim Beam doesn't allow you to just pick any barrel of Knob Creek, right? You don't just get to walk into a warehouse and go, I'll taste that one way over there and I'll taste that one way over there. They still have a program, right? Yeah. 
certain barrels, no doubt fantastic, never make it to their single barrel program. Jim Beam does not allow the following. Number one, barrels under nine years of age. Okay. Two, barrels under 121 proof. Three, barrels over 140 proof. Four, bottling strength of any proof other than 120. Yes. Okay. In addition to these restrictions, every barrel available for the single barrel program has to go through a tasting panel prior to being made available for selection. This means that you're not going to get barrels that vary far outside of the flavour spectrum of Knob Creek. Hmm. Imagine a Knob Creek bourbon that tasted like a rye. It would be an awesome barrel, but I'm sure barrels like that get rejected for the programme. My point is that even single barrel programmes at distilleries show only the profile that the distillery wants consumers to see. How can I appreciate a distillery if I can't see the full range of their product? It's like the craft beer drinker that claims to love craft beer, but only ever drinks IPAs. Hmm. And so that's that's a solid paragraph. <laughs> that's yeah. really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really and, good. And I, and I think it speaks to something you and I have talked about previously on the podcast, where we had an episode with uh, Eddie Russell, <laughs> where we were walking idea. around the warehouse, yeah. and we saw a barrel on its end, and it had rejected written across the, the barrel head. Mm-hmm. And you and I said, Eddie, please can we taste this? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I thought you guys might be interested in that. Because one of the things, and why we love and cherish the relationship we have with Wild Turkey one of the th- parts of our relationship, and, and I might want to say contract that we have with them, mm. is we are there to step outside the usual, the known, the norm, mm. the barrel pick project or the barrel pick program. And when we did taste that rejected barrel, we did select it, yep. we did bottle it, and it was incredibly well received. But Eddie Russell knew as well as anybody that barrel did not fit under what Alex is talking about in a general single barrel program. Well, yes. In the case of Wild Turkey, it's a, it's a bit different because what, what Eddie basically told us is this, the single barrel program that they do, the Russell's Reserve program that they do, he is letting other people pick their favorites. It's not about him at that point. It's if you're a bartender, if you're a shop owner, if you're a club, if you're what whatever. We make wild turkey. If you liked that barrel more than you liked any other barrel regardless of flavor profile, if you if you stand behind it, then I want to give you the opportunity to do that. That is Eddie's stance on the Russell's Reserve single barrel program. The reason why that rejected barrel said rejected on it is because what he is in charge of is Wild Turkey 101, Wild Turkey 81, um, some of the special, you know, like the the annual special releases and whatnot. Like he's concentrated on making sure that their standard product meets a particular flavor profile. And if a cask 
doesn't fit that, then he's going to write rejected on it. It doesn't mean that it's a bad whiskey. It just means it's not going to fit the Wild Turkey 101 profile. But but to Alex's point here, there's still a finite number of Wild Turkey barrels are going to make it into the single barrel program. Yeah, I think they do 400 per year around. Right, You, You can be a bartender who likes a particular flavor profile. You're still selecting from... What's in the warehouse, what, warehouse A, when you walk into it, what's already been pulled. None of us mm-hmm. are in the privileged or fortunate position to know single barrels the way Eddie does or Jimmy does or the kid, Bruce does. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's there's a point that, I think there's two points being made in that paragraph by Alex is number one, you're never going to have that freedom. And that, that's just by virtue of our lives, right? We are not Eddie Russell. We're not Brent Elliott. We're not Jane Bowie, right? It's, we, we don't get the privileged access to all of the casks. No. But we do get the privileged access to certain casks. And I think that's one thing that that Alex is always looking at is how far outside of their profile will any distiller go with what they're making available for a pick. Right. So peek behind the curtain, a little transparency. And we've we've mentioned this before, so I don't mind saying it again. When it comes to wild turkey, we're very lucky in that Eddie knows we like to look at, at casks where the whiskey is 60% alcohol and above. And so when we come to pick, he makes sure to bring some of those out for us, which is incredibly generous, but he'll still show us anything that's sub 60% alcohol. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I want to say the past two bourbons that we did with them were below the 60% alcohol range because in, in the end, you know, we just want to pick the casks that, that we think are the best yeah. given the assortment that, that were offered. But we do look for those higher ABV ones because we we find, you know, the whiskey's doing a slightly different thing with that higher alcohol. So we are we are lucky in that sense. Now we can also look at Glen Murray, right? Because we've purchased many casks from Glen Murray. And and in the end, the way the agreement has worked with them was, hey, we want you to offer us cask samples that you are proud of, that you would say, you know what, this is proper Glen Murray. But we're also interested in some of the, you know, off the beaten path ones too. You know, we, we don't necessarily want to bottle a version of Glen Murray that is just Glen Murray on steroids. Like we've done yeah. that before and that's good. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's really good. But you know what? They gave us a cask that was six years bourbon, six years Madeira. We found a, a cask through a broker that was seven years in Fino. We didn't get it from them, but we talked to them first because that's the relationship we have. And they said, you know what? We've never done Glen Murray in Fino. So whoever bought that must have stuck yeah. it in Fino. But if you say it's good, then we trust you. So let me make a very quick aside here, actually. Just the way you're rattling off the wild turkeys, the Glen Murrays. By the time this episode goes live, we will have a new bottle archive page on our website. Mm. And, and I am, encourage any listeners of this podcast to go check out 
the archive as it now exists on our website and start to chart some of these stories. Start to look at the relationships, the partnerships, the stories that we're trying to tell with subsequent releases from Mm. distilleries. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, go to singlecastnation.com. You'll see Bottle Archive uh, on the left side. Give it a click and go have a little read. It's a good looking spreadsheet. Um, So we could obviously wax lyrical. We could go deeper into that wonderful paragraph, but there are also questions. And so we might not get through all of them because even not emailing, we're getting in the weeds a little bit. Uh, Here's his first question. And he, and the reason the timing is perfect on this, he asks about the named Kalila selection Mm -hmm. that we will ultimately be releasing online Mm -hmm. to members of the nation. In regards to this Kalila selection, how many samples did you taste through to select this barrel? I understand if you don't want to answer this question. <laughs> and so I do. I do want to an- answer this question yeah, because I think it's good. Because it I I know the answer that I want to give and it draws on context. Because we're not just going to Kalila and saying, "Hey, Introduce us to your barrel select program. (laughs) Let us wander your warehouse. Let us select from your casks. That's not how Kalila or Diageo does business. Right. In this particular instance, this cask was offered to us as part of a group of samples. And so I'm not going to lie to anybody and say, oh, we were offered three casks, five casks, a dozen casks. This broker had one cask mm-hmm. that fit the, the remit. It fit what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. And we tasted this distillery next to many other distilleries. Correct. And our, our selection at that point is, do we like this Kalila enough to purchase it? Mm-hmm. And we did. And we did. <laughs> we liked it enough. We did purchase it. And now it's in a bottle. And now it's actually sitting in our warehouse in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, go ahead. But, but the, the, yeah. the larger point, the context that I wanted to put in here is this isn't a Kalila that exists in a vacuum for us. Mm. We are offered Kalila a lot. We have sampled through multiple Kalila single casks through multiple offerings Mm -hmm. from brokers. And so when we taste this one, we're able to talk about the general context under which we have sampled Kalila, under which we have consumed Kalila, even the distillery picks that we've picked up uh, when we've been on Isla. It exists within a much larger framework, and it's not just a, oh, Kalila, I wonder what that tastes like. Hmm. And now it's in a bottle. It's there's it's much richer history yeah. to that selection. Yeah. Anything to add? I just started thinking about this. It, w- it would be interesting to have tasted this one next to other Kalilas that we could have named to see if maybe our selection was different. But at the end of the day, that's that's not how it went, and. I'm incredibly proud of this of this pick. Like it just worked out so well. That subtle sherry that um, that's going on is different than any 
any other Kalila we've done in the past, and, and the fact that we're finally able to name it, that we can actually put Kalila on the bottle. Put a pin. Oh. <laughs> I'm very quickly going to say this is the first named Kalila we have sold online to nation members. Correct. Correct. And with that pin in you right now, Alex's second question, which I'm going to leave for you to answer. Okay. Can you explain why in some cases you were able to name the distillery on the bottle, but in other circumstances, when you may have named the exact distillery on other bottlings, on this specific bottling, you have to put undisclosed. So the question is, why can you sometimes put Kalila on the label and why do you sometimes have to be undisclosed on the label? You are now, sir, unpinned. At the end of the day, when you're offered a cask of whiskey or, or sometimes a parcel of whiskey, which can come in cask or it can come in like a tote or something like that, like a you know plastic or, or stainless tote, you, you have to agree to whatever the terms of that sale happens to be. And so with that said, it's, it's up to the distillery or whichever parent company owns the distillery to say whether or not they're comfortable allowing others to use the distillery name or not. And the fact of the matter is I, I, I don't understand, or the fact of the matter is I I can't say that there's necessarily rhyme or reason that is immediately understood when we're offered this. You know, I'll I'll, I'll give you an example that isn't Colila, right? Let's use Edrington, right? Edrington owns a few different distilleries. I know where you're taking this. Right. And so in the past couple of years, they've released a good amount of, quote unquote, Orkney spirit. Mm-hmm. But certain years, you know, certain vintages, they're allowing independent bottlers to actually use the name of the distillery that produces that Orkney spirit. And so as an example, I want to say maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago at this point, back when there was still an exclusive malts in this, and I I want to say this was the final release with exclusive malts, there was one Orkney and another one that actually said the distillery name, but it mm-hmm. was two different vintages. One was 25 years old, and they can use the name. One was 14 years old, and they couldn't use the name. And you know why a distillery would want to delineate between the two? We don't. We we just don't fully know. Yeah. So. Yeah. I also wonder on the. On the packaging of those, and mm. I, don't, I don't mean on the retail store bottle packaging, I mean when Edrington makes a decision, I wonder what size parcel went out to a broker who is who has a contract that allows the name to be used, yeah. and what portion of parcel went out to a broker who doesn't have a contract where the name is allowed to be used. And then as you kind of circle back, you get offered two different parcels by two different brokers and now you're in a situation where one of them you can use the distillery name and one of them you can't. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of cask movement happens behind the scenes that is all paperwork crossing desks. Exactly. The physical yeah. 
cask is sitting in the same spot, oftentimes until it gets pulled for bottling. But the paperwork can change hands, name a number, like that many times. Yeah, it, exactly. But the paperwork will always state whether or not you can use the distillery name. And yeah. and the fact of the matter is, that is a, a somewhat newer thing. I mean, there, there have definitely been some unnamed bottlings of a very famous Speyside distillery. The distillery mm-hmm. likes to say they're in the Highlands, um, mm-hmm. but they're also a Speyside. Anyway, you could, you could run the math there. Um, mm-hmm. But it's kind of a newer thing for distilleries to say, you know what? We don't want you to use the name. Yeah, um, it doesn't it doesn't make me happy. It's not a. I don't think it's part of the the progress of this industry. No, <clears throat> no, no, no. I, 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 I think it stifles progress. I, I think it it almost like like cattle. It's it's a way of herding con- consumers mm. toward their own brands. Anyway, okay, um, let's yeah. let, let's let's come back out of this. In the interest of time, I'm, you and I've got a couple of different meetings we need to head off to, but there's a couple more questions I want to squeeze in here, and then you've you've promised me a treat, which I'm I did. I certainly did. still yep. looking forward yep. to. Yeah, to make it happen. Um, so Alex asks, can you share more about what you tasted this Kalila against? Did you taste it on its own? Did you taste it against the other Kalila samples you were sent? Mm. I imagine a refill Sherry Kalila wouldn't lend itself well to a side-by-side comparison with a refill Bourbon Kalila. And, and I do want to, you know, answer that last part first is, as we just said in the news segment, as we have done with our retail releases, we love putting sherried versions against bourbon versions from the same distillery oh, yeah. because you do learn so much. And as you pivot oftentimes from sherry back into bourbon, you see more of the distillery spirit shine through gives you a better sense of how style as you pivot back from bourbon into the sherry you get to see okay how do the rich fruits play with Mm -hmm. that distinct Mm -hmm. distillery style i think there's a lot to be learned from having a sherry next to a bourbon version as we said earlier in answering question one we didn't taste this next to other kalilas um we you know, I can't actually remember what we tasted it next to, to be honest. I but, I can't remember either, but it right. was the only peated. No, it was it was one of two, right? I think we were offered uh, an Ardmore as well that that we ended up passing on. I I, I knew there was more smoke in there. Yeah. I knew there was other bourbon casks in there, but it, for us, and I've I've said this before on the podcast, and I've said it in my tastings. Anytime I sit down with a dram, I like to sit down with a point-counterpoint. Yes. And so I would invariably sit down with a dram from one region and then pour a second dram at the same time from another region and bounce back and forth mm-hmm. and see what we're doing. The other day I was I was um, drinking with my friend on Zoom on Saturday and um, I, I was drinking the Oak Cross, which I said on the last episode of One Nation Under Whiskey, it's a go-to for me in the house. And I, I was drinking the Oak Cross, and then I pivoted into the Abelar Alba, mm-hmm. which we also talked about in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. And that Abelar Alba just took on so many more fruit components 
than I normally get when I drink it by itself. Yeah. And and pivoting back and forth, the Oak Cross has got the spice from the French oak. The Alba is younger with this kind of active bourbon component going on. And I learned so much about both drams from, you know, having a couple of different things going on. Yeah, it's it's qu- quite often it's really good to have the, the context. And, and I, I talk about this in tastings, especially with people who don't like smoke. Oh, you don't like smoke? Okay, we have three smoky whiskeys we're going to taste. We'll do them side by side and back and forth until you can get past it. You need that context to discover other flavors. Um, yeah, or, or you realize that not all smoke is created equally. And you get to say, oh, I do like Highland smoke. Oh, okay, Isla smoke or specifically South Coast Isla smoky whiskeys I'm not the fan of. But... But again, it's context. You and I talk about context all mm, the time. Yeah. And it's getting that better understanding. So, yeah. so I'm cognizant of time. You and I both have places to go and things to do. Mm-hmm. Even during this lockdown, we're keeping plenty busy. And I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed getting to stretch my legs a little. Just, you know, relax the shoulders a little going through Alex's email questions here. But I've got one more to get us out of here. Okay, go ahead. I'm I'm ready, Jason. I imagine uh-huh. I imagine our listeners are ready too. <laughs> you think they've got things to do and places to go? Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I ho- you know what? I hope so. I How do. How long hope was so. the last episode? Two hours forty minutes. The last episode was two hours and forty minutes, and I've got to tell you, <laughs> it was one of the most downloaded and streamed episodes we've. We've had oh, awesome. in a while. Awesome. Like it went through the roof in a time when people are not driving anywhere. Yeah, I know that's my struggle. I've fallen behind on a lot of my podcasts. Yeah, Any, yeah. Listen, we're doing it again. So oh, focusing, yeah, <laughs> focusing here to get us out of here. Yeah. As one could surmise from the rest of this email from mm-hmm. Alex, this this has been a, a whiskey nerd selection of questions. Oh yeah, but but I think we're getting out of here on the. Whiskey nerd, whiskey question. Go ahead. When Diageo finishes rebuilding Port Ellen, <laughs> how close do you think they can come to replicating the whiskey made at Port Ellen? For comparison's sake, how similar does Arbeg from the 1970s, prior to its closure, taste to modern day Arbeg? Well,. I mean, while, while, yeah, while, okay, while you're having a wee think, there's just there's a couple more sentences, not of okay, the question. Okay, okay. Alex just says, thank you so much for your time. And that's for us and now for the listeners as well. It's rare to have the ability to ask these kinds of questions and obtain answers. Google is a great resource for most things, but comes up short in this respect. You know what? Let's not answer it. Let's just leave it. <laughs> did you mean? <laughs> yeah. Did you mean? <laughs> did you mean part Olin? <laughs> and then give them information about a Viking uh, god? Yeah. <laughs> and then it, it, so, yeah. so isn't, isn't that a great question? I, I think it's the absolute question. I've asked the same question about Rosebank. Yeah. Um, you know, again, a completely deconstructed site that will now have just a new distillery on it, but using an older name. So what do you yeah. think? Well, what do you think? You, how close do you think Port Ellen can come to being the Port Ellen of old? I guess it depends on how good the records from Forsyth are. 
that's part of it. So first off, my understanding is that the Port Ellen site has no more copper. Like the stills mm-hmm. are gone. Mm-hmm. The, the, the yeah. spirit safe is gone. And yeah. I've, I've told the story right. on a previous podcast about very good friends of mine being offered the spirit safe when they sat in the bar in Port Ellen yeah, right. of a night. So, so we know it's gone. Yeah. So so let's as, let's assume Forsyth has the schematics for Port Ellen's stills. I imagine there's dents there somewhere in the stills that you know you know there's, you hear all of these stories about you know distilleries replacing their stills after thirty years, and they make note of every scratch every dent you name it they they want to ensure that nothing affects that final spirit so that's that's one okay um the next thing is you have to keep in mind the distillery itself shuttered in 1983 spring of spring of and it was in the late 70s to early 80s when most distilleries were transitioning from a brewer's yeast to a distiller's yeast and doing a bit of a hybrid. So hopefully they've kept the records to see what yeasts they were using. That's another thing. Mm -hmm. Barley strain. Barley strains. I have a feeling that might affect yield more than anything, though having said that, you know, both you and I have tasted our fair share of beer barley experiments mm-hmm. that have definitely done mm-hmm. things different than concerto or optic or some of these more standard modern, you know. I think we've barleys. got some longtime listeners who are sitting with their jaw agape right now that you of all people would downplay the value and the importance of barley. Didn't I just I think you've shocked some people today, Joshua. But I also walked it's... back my words a little bit. I even said, well, wait a second, beer barley does different things. Also, I, I, don't, okay, I, don't, I don't want anybody to forget where the sentences started, <laughs> not where the sentences ended. <laughs> the other thing that we need to think about, too, is the majority of casks that Port Ellen was using, just like every other distillery, were bourbon barrels and or bourbon hogsheads. And back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, a lot of those casks were slow-growth oak. Mm -hmm. And I know that makes Mm -hmm. a big difference in bourbon. I don't know if Mm -hmm. that difference also uh, extends itself to to second use. And part of me wonders, does it? And uh, I would guess that that would play a part in it. Part of part of my response to it is we have no control here for a scientific experiment. If we start taking the Diageo special release Port Ellens and putting them next to younger, newly created Port Ellens, it's not apples to apples in that instance. Well, think about Port Ellen. When there were Port Ellen bottlings, you know, always by independent bottlers, right? There, there really wasn't Port Ellen's own bottlings because it was meant for blends. Part of the reason it was meant for blends is it was a bit too heavy, a bit too harsh for the palate of that day. And 
you, both you and I have tasted younger Port Ellens, 12-year-old, 16-year-old Port Ellens, and they are miles away from the 30-something Port yeah. Ellens oh, yeah. that, that yeah. most people are used to right now. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so let's say they get everything right. Right? Let's say the stills are perfect. Let's say they get all the <laughs> yeast right. Let's say the the slow growth oak isn't as impactful on you know uh, second use. You are not going to fully understand whether or not Diageo did a good job until thirty to thirty five years from now. Yeah, and and even if they get the spirit right, as you rightly point out the wood might lead it in a different direction. I, I think maybe one of the takeaways here is with each passing decade, there is no singular consistent, and there's that C word that mm. we always hear in the Scotch whiskey industry, but perhaps there's no singular consistent version of any whiskey. Is there like maybe just one singular sensation with every little <laughs> step she takes? I, I, I so hope that if I opened that door, you would walk through it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't use this term lightly. And you, my friend, you walked right through that door. So thank you. You're welcome. I could thank have said you. something about the C word, but I, I like where you <laughs> went with that consistency. <laughs> so so I think for how close do you think Diageo can come to replicating the whiskey made at Port Ellen, I, I'm not sure there's a an original platonic Port Ellen to come close to. No, and what what I what I would suggest, rather than being hopeful that they can replicate what Port Ellen used to do, I suggest we we throw that out the window and just you know, Diageo may be a couple of things. Some people say, oh, you know, they're they're the the big boys, you know, they're too big, you know, blah blah blah. The fact of the matter is they have 28 distilleries all producing delicious spirit. That's either for single malt or to go into blend. If if Diageo are many things, first and foremost, at least from a whiskey perspective, they are fantastic whiskey makers. And so I think that they're going to do a a, a fine job producing a peated Isla whiskey out of the new Port Ellen. I do personally am not planning on going into it thinking or even hoping it's going to be like the Port Ellen of yesteryear. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, and just very quickly, because we've already dealt with this question so quickly that I think we can just put a little quick cherry on top. Oh, yeah. If you, if you look at the conversation that existed, you know, a decade and a half ago when Ard Begg started releasing new 21st century malts, mm-hmm. how many old timers would we meet who would just continually say, this is nothing like the Ardbeg of the 70s? Yeah. And the Ardbeg of the 70s exists in its own moment. Again, we're back to that context again. The Ardbeg of the 70s, clues in the title, existed in the 70s, right? The Ardbeg of the 21st century is never going to be the yard bag of the 70s. It could never be. And that's because so much has changed. Fermentation times have changed. 
yeasts have changed. They've had different distillery managers who've made minor tweaks here and there. And while those minor tweaks here and there may not have been immediately apparent, um, you know, comparing new make spirits, that does change after time and cask. And so I, I, you know, again, getting back to can they replicate it? I, I think whether it's Port Ellen or whether it's Ardbeg, I think each era should be celebrated for, you know, on its, on its own merit. And I think, you know, as much as I love some of these older distilled whiskeys, I, I really like seeing that evolution and seeing these distilleries change, you know, in, in ways making improvements, uh, you know, and I know we're trying to keep this tight, but this is such a big and important question. Think about how important some changes are, and I will use Glen Scotia as the example. Glen Scotia, for years, unfortunately, had put out subpar whiskeys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you put Ian McAllister yeah, And the new there, ownership group. Right, and the new ownership group. But... You know, all of a sudden, the fermentation times go from yeah. 60-ish hours to 100-plus hours. Yep. Um, yep. The wood policy gets flipped overnight. The wood policy gets flipped. How high they're filling the stills is changed. Like, so yeah. much has changed. And now, Glen Scotia is gorgeous. Yeah. And yep. so... Hearing it from yeah. more and more people who yeah. are now discovering it for the first time after avoiding it for years. I'm going to get us out of here on this, Joshua. Instead of searching for the platonic ideal of any given distillery, Mm. I think we might be closer to what Heraclitus said, which is change is the only constant. And I think if we can view whiskey through that lens, Mm. I think we start consuming a very different product and we start thinking about that product in a very different way. I think, Jason, that that was a beautiful way to punctuate the end of that series of questions. Lovely. And thanks to Alex for just giving us a wealth of questions to deal with. There's there's two detailed questions we didn't even get to. And so we, we might dip into those at another, another date. But, uh, but thanks a million, Alex. Joshua, you promised a treat for me, and I'm, I'm not going to let you forget that. I did. I did. So I have a favor to ask of all of our listeners. Normally, after we read listener emails, we let everybody know how they can reach out to us, you know, through the email, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com, through Twitter, at One Nation Whiskey, Instagram, at One Nation Under Whiskey, et cetera, right? I'm getting but we're not doing that this this no. time. We're not doing that this time. Okay, so we're doing it different. I, uh-huh. I am so good that I already did it, and you didn't even know I did that. <laughs> I teased this on our single cast nation page, as oh, where we, you knew you knew I wouldn't see it there. <laughs> exactly, and that's and that's why you don't know anything about this because you're never in, on the face web in plain sight. <laughs> <laughs> I I teased this on the Single Cast Nation Facebook group page as well as the One Nation Under Whiskey Facebook group page. Just like today, where we took a detour from whiskey and and lived in the world of cocktails with Amanda Schuster, we are going to take another detour 
and we're actually interviewing uh, Dr. Daniel Whiteson, who is a particle physicist. He is a, um, a professor at UC Irvine. He also works at CERN Labs in Geneva. I posted on our Facebook page the TED Talk that he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that. We, we, as in you and me, Jason, are going to be getting on a call with Daniel to discuss everything from the most minute of particles all the way to the biggest ideas when it comes to the universe. And I'm asking, and we're going to do this while having many whiskeys, and I'm asking our <laughs> listeners, if you have a question, please email us at the aforementioned email address. Reach out to us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, however you want to do it. But, you know, I have questions that I know I would like answered, but I would love to hear from you uh, to see if you have any questions that you have for the good Daniel Whiteson. Yeah, given the way he dings philosophy in his uh, TED Talk, I've got a few questions for him as well. Oh, I know. You guys are going to come to fisticuffs. (laughs) (laughs) Now I can see why we're no longer interviewing him on site in California. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know we need to get out of here. There's two points that we need to leave our listeners with. And Jason, I hope you've poured. You have. You've you've got a whiskey in hand. And I know what you've poured. And I know what you've poured. So what I've poured is actually for for a friend. So a good friend and and good whiskey guy and a mentor to, to many people a gentleman by the name of Mike Walsh. Unfortunately, uh, he caught COVID-19, and after weeks and weeks of fighting, he succumbed to the virus, and he's now gone. Yeah, sad, sad news. Yeah. So he he absolutely loved Lefroig. And so in his honor... I poured our Single Cast Nation Laphroaig five-year-old, uh, which is my favorite Laphroaig that we've bottled. And sorry, actually, the day that I heard he had passed, I, I opened the Warehouse Liquors single cask of, of Laphroaig and raised that in his honor. A worthy dram for a, a very, very good whiskey man. I think, I think my, my whiskey had a bit more salinity in it that evening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That'll um, happen. That'll but I, happen. But well, we have our, you and I and our listeners, raise a glass to Mike Walsh. To Mike Walsh. To Mike man. Walsh. A good, good whiskey man. Yeah. Cheers, Mike. You'll be missed. Indeed. Do you have um, good news to get us out of? We do. We, <laughs> okay. we do. With, with the death, we, we follow with a birthday. Mm. And we're recording this the day after our very good friend at Glen Murray, Ian Allen, has celebrated another trip around the sun. It's amazing. 13 already, huh? Yeah, I, I, I think he's 52 now. Oh, 52, yeah. And you got to carry the one. I forgot about that. Yep. <laughs> and so in my glass, I have, in honor of Ian, our Glen Murray 11, first Phil Bourbon, uh-huh. bottled January of 2015. Ah, okay. And so we... We wish a very happy birthday to Ian Allen. He's a good lad and uh, takes very good care of us. And anytime we've got people going to Elgin, we send them off to Glen Murray. We tell them to ask for Ian 
and he shows them a jolly good time. Nothing to do with the distillery. He uh, <laughs> takes them to the Inverness <laughs> Harbour. But <laughs> he's a very, very good lad and we, we thoroughly enjoy him. So cheers to Ian Allen and his birthday. Cheers to Ian Allen and his birthday. Cheers to Mike. Cheers to our listeners. And of course, Jason, cheers to you and Amanda. Thank you again for, for joining us. Yep. Thanks to Amanda for the interview. Thanks to Alex for the questions. Thanks to you, as always, for the editing. And here we are. We'll do this again shortly. Indeed. Cheers, Joshy. Cheers. L'chaim. L'chaim. Now that all three of us are have pressed record, we've got to uh, we've got to count elephants together. Okay. So you and I, having grown up in America, we understand there's a state called Mississippi, and that yes. growing up, if you wanted to count time, you would use Mississippi as your friend to say one Mississippi, Absolutely. two Mississippi. Scott's people apparently have never heard of this <laughs> this state in our great Man, union. I'm. I'm feeling attacked. I'm feeling attacked right now. <laughs> but but they but they have heard of elephants. So we just we just say one elephant, two elephant, three elephant. Okay. And do that. You, you and we have to do this so to eleven? This goes to eleven? We do that until eleven. Yeah. Eleven AM, Amanda. You gotta go till eleven AM wow. saying this. And that'll be the podcast, <laughs> just us counting <laughs> elephants. Okay. Wouldn't, wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's very space ghost of us. It would be very space ghost of us that, uh, to do that. I think. Ooh, nice space ghost reference. <laughs> Remember the one where there was just the episode of him crawling around on a planet, moaning. That was like half an hour of that. It was amazing. <laughs> was that <laughs> was that a newer space ghost one or an older? It was an older one. It was from the dark period. Older, like well, when you and I were younger. Well, okay, no, uh, when you say, uh, from Space Ghost, Co- like the talk show one, the one that was in the 90s, oh, but in the early side of that. Okay, see, I don't know that. I don't know that. Oh, God. Oh, God, you're missing out. Really? It was It was incredible. Wow. Uh, I have no idea what's happening right now. I'm just <laughs> okay, all right. sorry. Before we start on Mississippi, we go to Space Ghost. Like, this is, <laughs> wow. <Sorry. laughs> this is really anti-Jason this morning. Anti-the Scots. Wow. Sorry. Yeah. A- all right. Acidic, well, acidic Jasons. I promise we'll be talking about things that you can you can participate in. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words. Okay. All right. All right. Let's, let, it's a, great. let's count Mississippi. So, okay. here we go. Are we doing oh, no, 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 elephants. <laughs> elephants. We're doing elephants. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, doing we're elephants. Doing... We, we've got to include everybody in the class. For everybody in the class. <laughs> One elephant. One elephant. Two, two elephants. elephants let's, three elephants. Let's four let's elephants. You can't, you, Amanda, you're doing what Jason does. You're, you're overthinking. Yeah. You're, you're stretching mean? time. Because instead of saying elephant, you're saying elephant. Welcome oh, to the team, Amanda. Welcome to the club. <laughs> see, this is why Mississippi is so much easier because you you can't draw out of Mississippi. There's nobody who says Mississippi. <laughs>
Nobody. Or Mississippi. Like, nobody does that. Mississippi. You, can just, you, you just got to get it out of your mouth. You know? <laughs> like, All right. Hey, let's, you know? let, let's do Mississippi. Let's make our guest feel comfortable. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Here we go. Now he can shout at me when I screw it up. <laughs> this is amazing. <sighs> okay. Lead us in with a hand gesture, Joshua. Oh, yeah, 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 hand gesture. Here we go. Lead us in. And. Okay. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi, 